I, I just need to add something. You, you know how Wajin just said, like, Digso makes, like, the server better? I'm pretty sure you get worse if you watch Milk stream because he always <laughs> does, like... Wait, what? It, 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 like, the thing is, you will, he, he always, like, he'll, like, one-trick Kai'Sa to, like, rank one, and then you look at the stream and it's like, all right, I got, all I gotta do is I gotta build Shoujin JG, and then I'm gonna win the game. And then you do it in your own game, you just go eight. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Talk If You Don't Know, the unofficial official podcast dedicated to all things high-level teamfight tactics in North America as we take on the Rune Terror Reforged Wrapped episode today on November 16th, 2023. My name is Frodo. your host as usual. Joined with me is a new face to the show that people are not familiar with. It's Casanova who's filling in for Bryce. Bryce, unfortunately, uh, could not make it tonight because he was uh, on a date with his wife and he said that he could make it to the show, but he accidentally double booked. Uh, so we wish Bryce a, a happy night off because, as you know, Bryce had twins uh, with his with his family. So we went from one to three kids. They don't get many nights off. And so if he is able to get a night away from the fam, they got to take it. So understandable. Uh, and on that note, we're more than happy to welcome Casanova, who you may have seen cast a lot of the North American circuits, but also came to the World Championship alongside myself in Spain. So Cass, welcome to the show. No, thank you so much. I'm excited to be on a, a show that's a little bit less, um, like, I don't know, buttoned down all the time. Get to just hang out and talk about TFT and have some fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're usually official casters, so you're usually all <laughs> proper and yeah. professional. But uh, this show is anything but, as you probably uh, have Unleashed. learned over the, the, the past years or two. <laughs> yeah, I've watched it plenty, yeah. <laughs> uh, we want to welcome back to the show, Wajin Iverson, who previously we also had him on a wrapped episode, but that's because he made it to back-to-back -back World Championship and made deep runs two seasons in a row. Wajin, welcome back. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, I'm very excited to be back, but I do feel like I need to go on like a preview episode one day so I can do a fantasy draft. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that? Oh, I mean, I don't know. It just seems fun. I feel like I could win. Okay. okay, all right. Well, I'm excited to, one, uh, see what you got in the upcoming fantasy. We'll, we'll, we'll recap a little bit of fantasy for the season. And I'm so sad. Uh, I'll tell you guys more about it in a bit, but I'm so sad Bryce is not here because recapping fantasy is one of my favorite yeah. activities, especially <laughs> after set nine. More on that later. Let's all go ahead and also welcome in our second special guest. It's Toronto, Tokyo. Uh, now, the thing is, it's not the Toronto Tokyo you might think and hear of if it's their first time. It's like, oh, the Dota player who was at the International? Is, is he also a TFT player? It's a different Toronto Tokyo. He goes by Lebo Chang is in real life. You might have actually seen him as a pro gamer in StarCraft previously. Uh, so, Toronto, welcome to the show. Why don't you introduce yourself again for anybody who may not actually have seen you uh, before? Yeah, uh, I'm a TFT player now. I used to be a StarCraft 2 player about 10 years ago. I was on uh, Team EG at the time, and now I just play TFT for fun and also competitively. And uh, thank you, Rodan, for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Here's a fun fact that might blow your guys' mind. Uh, when, when Toronto was a teenager and he was competing in StarCraft, I actually casted him as a StarCraft because I was also a StarCraft caster <laughs> about 11 years ago. So the, our, our worlds actually have collided at one point uh, where I was actually casting, but I didn't realize this until I saw your fact sheet for regionals when you said you were a former starcraft proof i was like your name sounds so familiar i went back and looked and i didn't realize that i actually if you go back there's probably somewhere on the internet youtube vods of frodan and greetorp casting starcraft 2 and it's probably a, a toronto game when he was just like a young teenager did you did you know that or and did you keep it or was that news to you as well 
Uh, yeah, that's news to me, but I feel like I I feel like I know you so well. You probably don't know me so well, but I grew up watching like the old NASL StarCraft yeah, 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know? I was like, I, I used to watch that every single day, you know? So it's just like, I feel like I've seen you around for more than a decade now, I guess. It's like, so since. funny, too, because uh, Toronto took like a long break, I guess, from like the public limelight and taking pictures. So we only have pictures of when he was a teenager as a pro gamer. So uh, any photos that we've used for like the social media announcements and stuff is because he's kind of like off the grid now, so to speak. But uh, we're, we're, we're more than happy to welcome you back into the TFT. Um, so let's go ahead and just catch up about life. So let's talk about like, you know, what's been going on. What, what, Cast, you were in Spain. You were casting the World Championship. That was your first time you casted Worlds on that kind of stage. What was it like for you? Yeah, so uh, for TFT, I've been like wanting to get to Worlds for forever, right? I started casting TFT in set one, right? Like I was doing Fight Night with Crowen uh, forever. Uh, mm -hmm. And then eventually kind of took a break, did Legends of Runeterra, did Worlds for that, came back. And uh, getting a chance to go to Spain and work with all of you was is kind of like a, a big dream. Like I I've been in esports for so long. I was a pro player, then a caster. Like, um going to spain working in that big movie studio right it's just uh it's an incredible experience and like adventures with bebe i will always remember <laughs> and now it's you know it's a, it's a vegas waiting room to see, see what happens next right yeah do you have any funny baby stories just, just tell us one i i have many yeah. baby stories but just tell me one funny uh or or like interesting moment that you had or with him or with more dogs i think that maybe that was the first time you met more dog as well yeah, the, the immediate one that comes to mind with Bebe is uh, so the day after uh, the show, me, Bebe, and Pai Hat were there for one additional day. And so Bebe wanted to like show us around Alicante, right? Uh, and so he's taking us to a castle and we end up like going up this route and there's a sign that says, you know, uh, Castillo this way, right? So it's like, okay, that's where we should go. But Bebe's like, no, we're going to take this path and follow these people. They must know. And so we go the other path. Oh. It doesn't go all the way up to the castle. We walk like up this steep ass hill for a while. Pie Hat's dying. Anyways, it doesn't get to the top of castle. We come back down. Later, we're getting dinner, and Counterfeit tells me that Bebe did the same thing to Panda the previous year, and they had tried to like scale the mountainside to make it to the castle. Wait, <laughs> so he actually did this with me castle. too. He, he did this. He did this in three separate incidents. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Wait, what? He just doesn't. Okay, do you know I, what the you know what the hilarious thing is scamming, of this dude. story? There's an elevator you can take to yeah, the top. You don't even have to actually climb the stairs manually to the top of the castle. So you're telling me that baby manually tried to j j just climb three times in a row by foot to the top of the castle instead of actually going to the castle. He's, ne yeah. he's never been to the castle. He's only he's been, yeah, been outside of it. it. Yep. I don't think he's ever made it. And yeah, he told us there's a lift and we were trying to find our way to it. Okay. But ended up like, I don't know, man. It was absolutely insane, but it, right. it was it was still like a fun experience, right? We got to explore the city and everything, but that's my crazy baby story. I, there are plenty, but of course for, for time, you know. <laughs> I love that. I love time. that. <laughs> uh Weijin, we talked a little bit about in the pre-show, but now we're actually during the show. You actually struggle with worlds and like your school uh schedule right you had, you had midterms going on and everything turned out okay with that yeah everything turned out okay actually my biggest fear is that like one day like one of these big tournaments is going to be like on the same day as a test and it's like really hard to get these test moves and, and like since i've been competing it's never happened before but i like i know it's going to happen someday and i have no idea what i'm going to do didn't you okay so was it with you that bryce was like i will write a letter to your professor to like help you move that he did it with dqa by the way for the world championship and it worked 
Did did you actually end up taking that offer at all, or did you did you not uh, do that? I, I didn't take him up on it, but I might have to someday. Like, okay, okay. The thing is, it's really hard for them to move it because you know there's like obviously like security concerns and stuff. Like if you write the exam first, like, right, they right, could be right. You can leave it that you're like else. telling other people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Okay, got it, got it. Well, uh, I'm glad everything worked out. Hopefully, you got good enough grades and <laughs> it all worked out especially because um tft is fun but uh education especially if you are you know working in a, in a field related to your major is really important um so that's a little bit about us in terms of like what we've been catching up to i was at the world championship but ever since then i've been jamming a lot of set 10 pbe which we're going to talk about right now just a little bit we're not going to go too much in depth into set 10 in general but kind of want to get people's first impressions uh, as we're transitioning, because it launches next week, November 21st, alongside, by the way, uh, mobile, which is getting that uh, ability for people to log in through PB and on tablet support as time goes on. So really exciting stuff. Uh, so first reactions to set 10. Let's start off with Toronto. Uh, I think it's going to be a better set than set 9. I feel like people always say this, but the problem with set 9 was that you just had to play a bunch of portable forge and kind of the same augments so the thing i'm looking forward to the most is just being able to play like a wide breadth of augments again without feeling like i'm getting handicapped by playing portal because that's kind of what it was for all of set 9. so just that part of the game is is going to be a lot funner just to start and that that opens up more things you know because a lot of portable forge and like earth on 2-1 was like you get this augment and you're forced into this line, right? But I feel like now we're back, we're kind of playing TFT again. So that's my thoughts on it. So okay, okay. And that and, and so just 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 for my own familiarity with it, when did you start competing in TFT? Actually, when did you start playing TFT? And when did you start taking it seriously? Because you're kind of a mystery box in terms of when you actually started. We're not entirely sure. Oh yeah, so I started playing TFT in set one, but it's always been, you know, here and there more casually, I guess. Mm. Um, it's kind of hard to say when I really took it seriously. I guess I really took it seriously in set nine, but I've always been like trying to climb and, and play since maybe like set six, set seven. Okay, okay. got it, got it. Uh, uh, Weijin, what is your impression of set 10? How much have you been able to play it so far? You like it? Yeah, I've played, like, a decent amount of set 10. Out of, like, all the sets that I've, like, played and competed, it seems, like, by far, like, the most flexible set of all time. Like, it feels like verticals are, like, not very important, and you just want to play, like, a bunch of, like, good units. Um, I think, like, that might be, like, I'm almost, like, a bit concerned about that, because I feel like it's very different than, like, what I'm used to, so I'm wondering, like, how that's going to affect me. But I also feel like, in terms of, like, replayability and, like, fun, it's, like, a very good thing. So I, I, I am very excited. Okay, okay. So, yeah, that's right. You didn't play Chosen in Fates in set four. You, because so, you started in set six, set seven? Yeah, maybe, maybe I played like 20, like 10 or 20 games of it, but like, yeah, I didn't like actually play it. Okay, interesting, interesting. Yeah, I think that's going to be a new fascinating thing because there's like this new wave of players who haven't really experienced that because they started a lot later. Um, I'm sure you'll get up to speed, man. You're you're an elite. You you know how to get good. I'm sure you'll you'll be able to figure it out. I'm I'm really excited for that. Uh, Cass, your first impressions of set ten? Yeah, I I think um the way I look at it is it, it feels a lot more like a modular TFT, right? Like you find your little different uh smaller synergies and put them together to just make really unique and creative boards. And I think that uh, I really like just how flexible it plays right now. I think uh, I'm somebody who historically in TFT I liked playing with a lot of direction, but uh, recently I've started to have a lot more fun with flex play and that's why I really hated uh, a lot of like 9.5 because it didn't feel 
so flexible. It was like what I used to like as a TFT player, but not what I've been uh, more recently enjoying. And I think set 10 kind of is scratching that itch like immediately of being this like really flexible set. And I think that uh, because of that, it should be really good. I think they fixed Chosen. I didn't really like Chosen in set four personally. I wasn't a big fan of it. Uh, but I think oh. that the fact that you can see, uh, you can still see the headliners, you know, like uh, every four rolls is pretty nice. Uh, but on top of it, I've actually found that since I've just a lot better at TFT than I was in set four, um, just kind of selling out of headliners and just creating new boards, like every couple stages, you just completely like sell almost everything, make a new board has been a lot of fun. So why didn't you like set four? Just out of curiosity. It's, a lot, uh, it's, a, it's one of the most popular sets alongside yeah. the base sets at one and, and set six when they introduced augments. I, I genuinely think it was like a it was like a skill diff. I think I was just like not very good. And because chosens were difficult for my play style of like trying to find direction or play like a very specific comp uh and then like if i can't find the chosen for it like i'm actually just boned and it sucks uh i think like i struggled a lot in that set and because i was at that time not even casting tft i wasn't really even playing very much tft at all uh the fact that i was playing so little games i think just made me dislike it got it okay well no one asked me but this is my show so i'm gonna ask myself <laughs> what do you think about set 10 I just want to say one thing. We made it. We did it. We made it across the desert 40 years in the wastelands. And now we're in the land of milk and honey. Set 10 is the promised land. Oh my God. I forgot what it was like to play real TFT. More dogs in chat. So just go ahead and, 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 just, and just relax for a bit here. We, I forgot what it was like to taste what good, delicious TFT feels like. I forgot what it meant to make meaningful, fluid decisions that actually had consequences for not understanding what I'm actually doing. Instead of just stacking higher or just like doing the same type thing and just like, well, it's not Shojin, it's actually blue buff. Oh, it's actually Nashor's dude. I mean, that, that kind of optimization is like, is like all fine and good in its own right, but that's not what I'm here to do TFT. That, I did that in Hearthstone. I did that with a lot of card games where it's like maybe this one card out of 30 or one card out of your lineup of 90 cards is like the difference, right? That's what the granularity was of optimization for TFT for so long. And I kind of want to just recapture the magic of what made this game truly special because TFT is. And set 10 is that. Now, now that's a question of balance and whether or not we can make the mechanics work. A lot of headliner plus my portals are still around and and all these kind of different things with bonuses. Maybe the balance is still not going to be there. But I just want to say, this has been the best that TFT has felt in years. And I am so excited to play 10. And more importantly, I'm excited to see where the competitive scene takes off. So welcome back, Team Fight Tactics. And on that note... I also want to say, uh, you guys may have seen if I did a little flub with my production, is that uh, not only is TFT back, TFT is on the map. There's a cool uh, thing that's coming up for people who are a big fan of League of Legends esports. The World Championship is extremely hyped. Faker is destroying the Golden Rogue, Rogue, the go Golden Road, and taking out each LPL team one by one. It's going to be really exciting between T1 and Weibo Gaming, but also premiering at the World Championship finals is a tft music video did you guys see this announcement it's actually yeah, really it's sick so it's sick. got dj sona and yasuo and everything like that wait did you get a chance to see this announcement at all no i, I actually didn't see this yet okay it's really sick so if you're a fan of leaks i know you are because you used to play league uh, a lot even before tft it's gonna be really hype make sure you check that out i know we're not normally a league of legends podcast and if we were 
we'd probably be a lot less happy, maybe not even playing the game. But now we're here, we're doing TFT, and now we're going to be premiering on the world stage. It's going to be really sick. Just goes to show you how far TFT has come along. Okay, but as much as we want to talk about Set 10 and all the good stuff, we're here to also recap Set 9. This is mainly a reflective episode. If it's your first time reading it, we're going to be, or being here for this type of episode, uh, we're going to talk about worlds in just a moment here, and then we're going to talk about a different type of rankings. Before we do power rankings, it's about previewing what's to come and set expectations, right? How good is Wage and Iverson's form? Is Toronto Tokyo actually not just a beast in scrims? Is he going to do well in tournaments and talk about that? This is like a definitive episode that we wrap up and talk about everyone's set holistically and talk about like the broader storylines of players and this is i mean bryce is actually really sad because this is his favorite episode of the set every single time but uh it's 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 an opportunity for us to be reflective because i think it's important to keep in mind what happens in tft because so much so much goes on the off season is like a couple weeks at most and we want to really make sure that we're able to also appreciate people's performances and speaking of performances let's start off with the world championship and the fact that this title guy is an absolute animal uh i actually asked nature to run the stats on title and title over the course of three championships has averaged a 3.76 with a first place rate of 27 percent and top four rate of 65 percent that's three champs in a row uh, that, that he's been doing that where he got second in one and first in another i want to ask the players who went up against him so i'll start off with toronto what was it like going up against title what was it like playing the world championship for you uh, I, I mean, I think Tyler is really strong. I don't really know if there's too much to say. He was really strong in scrims. He's obviously really strong in the tournament, so really strong player. Um, for how it was to play the tournament, I would say that for me personally, I, I feel like I rank the TFT players in like two kind of categories because I, I don't really see anyone that's just like far and away better than ever, anybody else in the field. Like personally, I had Wager Neverson as my favorite to win the tournament. But the thing is, like, once you get to this higher echelon, like the top 10, top 15 players, everybody's just really solid. And that's just how I would describe it, where nobody's making really obvious bad blunders. And then I feel like anybody in that top 10, I wouldn't be surprised if they won the tournament, just if they had a good day. So, yeah, I know it was really fun to play the tournament. It was a great honor. And I, I hope I can make it again. Okay. Okay. Uh, Weijin... Now, you came in with, like, a lot of expectations and and hope, right? Like, in, in the sense that this is your second championship in a row that you made, and it's kind of like your second full set. So, if anything, you're just kind of having an additional breakout performance following up your rookie season. Uh, did that weigh on you? I think a lot of people were saying, like, you know, Wajin's going to be in there, he's going to win for NA, etc. Did that, did that mess with your head at all? Uh, I, like, I did see those kinds of comments, but I actually felt way less pressure than, like, the first time I was at Worlds. I think it's, like, partly the experience, but also, like, partly it was because, like, like, the first time I went to Worlds, I felt like, oh, like, this might be, like, my only shot at Worlds, like, I'll never go again. But, like, uh, even, at, like, this time at Worlds, like, I kind of realized even if things don't go my way, like, I feel like I'll have lots of other chances to, like, play in, like, these, like, high-stakes tournaments and, like... Like someday I'll probably like have a chance to make it back to world. So I mean, I guess just in that sense, like I just didn't feel like nearly as much pressure. And I think that's also like uh, something that really contributed to like my success because I'm sure that there's like lots of players. It's like their first time at Worlds and they were like super nervous. But yeah, I actually didn't feel that like as much this time, which was very good. Wait, can you tell us a bit about that like final lobby and title being on the tear of like win win? He's on the final game on game four. Like, did you feel any different on that game of what you wanted to do in game plan because 
it felt like you know title was playing like everyone was against him with the way that he you know sacked the first couple rounds he was trying to hold on to those tomes try and play something uncontested and went out from there but on your end of it where you're trying to stop this guy potentially from going first again like how was that situation going for you yeah so for me like uh going into that game like my number one concern was just trying to get like a top three finish in that game because i needed a top three finish to get into like check which is like like a huge huge deal like fourth versus like eighth is like almost no difference but like fourth between uh fourth versus third is like a huge huge difference because then it just means like i can win the tournament like on the next game if title doesn't win like i was not that concerned with like kind of like griefing him almost but i feel like he played that game like really excellently and that he like gave people almost like zero chance to grief him like he just like lost streaked and then like three fived it and like hit his whole board in like one turn it's like when he already has like all of his upgrades like there's not even anything to grief like he just he's just pushing levels at that point so yeah and i mean i think like you have to consider like like there's still like a lot of money on the line like even if he wins the tournament like you still want to play for your like max placements yeah. and like stuff so yeah, I feel like it's a lot like more complicated than just like oh, like grief title because he can win. Yeah, of course. Do you think uh, so? People say that it's not J Japan; it's title, right? Like title is the strong player, and it's in as much as people like to tie into regionality of things. Uh, like title is the only threat from Japan. Do you feel like that's actually true? I mean, you scrimmed against uh, Kaz, and, and you've played a two worlds against uh, Japanese players. Do you think Japan is a strong region? Um, and, and and if so, uh, you know, I just want to hear your like commentary about like that because I think a lot of people are saying like it's just title. You agree with that? Uh, I mean, I don't think that Japan is like a super weak region, but I do think like title is like noticeably like like a notch above like the rest of like the Japanese players. Okay, okay, and I think that's fair. I mean, right now I think the the data suggests that Japan has been able to get players into final lobby, but. You know, not to put too much, not to flame Latham, but Latham actually has this experience a lot where they get to the final lobby and then they kind of like either get blasted or it's just like, you know, it just feels like they had like one or two runs where they got close. But that was the only player that got outmatched because I think going back to what Toronto was saying, you look at second to seventh and they're separated just by a few points. And it really could have just been like, if we got a couple other games, maybe things reverse and you saw how close some of those games were where maybe like one fight is like three placement swings right so it goes from maybe volta goes from seventh to third and, and waging can go of like third to six um and so i i personally believe that title is that good and japan is underrated but i've yet to see a little bit more from jp if they actually are like the strongest region in the world i think title is just phenomenal um toronto i want to ask about emea you know we were a little trash we there's some trash talking actually i got flamed on the main broadcast because uh I was I was trash talking e, uh, EMEA on Twitter a little bit for fun, uh, and then they've got two people in the final lobby. What was your read on EU? A lot of people love to make fun of this region because they haven't made Worlds Finals lobby in like three sets, and now all of a sudden they're they're getting more people into that top eight. What 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 was your vibe on that? Mm, actually, I mean I don't really have any bad blood against EU because I feel like in this this esport we don't really play against EU a lot, so. Uh, I think he was actually really solid. The players that they sent to this Worlds were really, really solid. Um, I, I don't really know if there's much more to say about that, but when I played in scrims and in, in Worlds, like, I didn't see them making any obvious mistakes. I just felt like they were all, like, especially Wet Jungler, I thought he was, he was, he was playing really well. Was okay. really good. Yeah. Wei do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like, I think you was, like, a... I think they have, like, a lot of strong players, but I, I actually think that they don't have any, like, 
one or like two players that I feel like like stand out like super hard to me. And I feel like like it like let's say there was some like merged server of like EU and NA, like I feel like NA would just be like like an NA player would like always be like rank one, in my opinion. Ah, interesting. That's what we love to hear. Yeah. So you're saying there's there's no like elite of like like Japan has title right almost like if they need one player to win against an alien race right in a game of TFT there's like NA could choose a few players China could choose a few players Japan could stand title and you're saying EU doesn't have that player is that is that is that right? Yeah, that's like kind of how it feels to me. Like maybe I could be wrong, but that 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 was kind of my impression just from like scrims and like I mean I watch EU tournaments and stuff as well just to study. Okay. Okay. Yeah, Weijin saying if the alien race comes, EU is screwed. They are, they're doomed. Yeah. They're not gonna live. <laughs> a lot of the other regions, they're fine. They're gonna live. EU not gonna make it. I mean, it kind of depends. I think part of it is also visibility for the rest of the world. I think unless you watch EU, there's a couple of players that did stand out this season. I think Sasa did really well in particular. He won two tournaments. He did the same thing at what Setsuko and Kurum did, which is like win two yeah. tournaments out of like the three, four tournament season, which is like really, really impressive um so there are a couple of players that stand out and of course people like really like to talk about double 61 but uh i think people kind of have forgotten a little bit of that we'll see we'll see either way it's funny because i get i got flamed by eu but i'm like one of the only na casters that's willing to give them credit at all so like i don't i don't understand yeah, they shoot the messenger, man. They just shoot the messenger. Yeah, it's funny because like I'll give them credit on broadcast while flaming in the production room like pretty consistently, <laughs> but I just didn't take it to Twitter, so they left me alone. I think that's the big difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right, all right. Uh, uh, let's talk about CN, by the way. Oh, very, CN, yeah, yeah. Be very quickly. Uh, CN had three players in, but more specifically, the story of the tournament was their mobile players. Uh, did they, could you tell the difference at all, Weijin, going up against mobile players? Sam, were they just like just as strong as the PC players? Because that was a big storyline. Because China didn't even believe in them. They were like, "Man, we sent mobile players. We're going dead last. Like we're not winning this world. We suck." And then the mobile players impressed the Chinese players. No, like I, I genuinely thought, like, e like even like in scrims and like in the tournament, like even before the tournament happened, like I genuinely thought that they were actually like quite strong players. The one thing is, like, sometimes they would make some, like, really, really, like, strange decisions. But, like, or maybe it's, like, one, one, one guy or something. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, like, as a whole, they were actually, like, very strong and, like, actually, like, world's level players. Okay. So, if NA decided to host, like, some seeds in NA was uh, determined by mobile, you wouldn't be opposed to that? Oh, I mean, I would be very opposed to that just because, like, the thing is, those guys who qualified, like, I'm, they've probably been, like, grinding mobile, like, super hard for, like, like a very, very long time. And also, the thing is, the mobile game is actually, like, a bit different. Um, but the thing is, um, for, like, in NA TFT, there's no reason that, like, mobile players couldn't just compete against, like, PC players because the game's the exact same. Okay. Toronto, I, pull, I pulled up the scores. You were 10th. You were really close. What happened day two? Day one, momentum was all on your side, man. It looked like things were great. I thought we were gonna get two people in, and then it started off rocky. You can't. You finished stronger, but it felt like uh, that first half of the day was not going your way. And uh, what, what, what was happening on your end? Mm, I think I punted. Uh, like through, my placements really came down to one game I threw with the, which was a Demacia game. But I mean, I don't think it was like a nerves thing. It was kind of uh, I had a really faulty heuristic going into that game where I thought that on if I'm on level seven. And I have a two-star carry with Demacia Crest and Jarvin one as a front line with items on him, that I can go eight. That's the, that's what I thought. And I think that was a bad 
that's a bad thing to think as a player. Like, you should never have any hard rules like that. I think I just didn't kind of understand that I needed to roll more in that specific spot. I was really unfamiliar with Nyla carry as a Demacia Crest holder because that never came up in practice for me where I just hit Nyla in, like, one roll and then I have to play Nyla carry. So it was just a really unfamiliar spot in that particular game, which that should have been a second, and uh, it ended up being a seventh. And the other games, I think I actually low-rolled like three or four games in a row, but it would have all been fine if I had just closed out the Demacia game that I was supposed to close out, because I was in a really good spot that game. And yeah, I don't know. I don't really think it was like bad luck or anything overall. I think I just didn't play well enough. So mm. there's not much to say. Yeah, I, I think a lot of people are going like, to like look at like the 8-8 and like games like what it, like three and four of the day but like we watched those games back and one of them was actually like so sad it was like like it was like um it was a silver start which is already like kind of bad and then he got like no good options so he was forced to like take branching out then he got like challenger and it's like challenger is fine but like he had like no opener for it so it's like oh like open until three five roll 40 gold zero kaisa zero fiora it's like yeah you're just like eighth yeah like it was actually so sad wow yeah that's uh well one yeah. very tragic to hear two uh, I, you know, it's actually cool that you VOD reviewed the games after the, you were playing from the tournament. Was this to help Weishin, or is that just for your own improvement, Toronto? Oh, that was to help Weishin. I thought, like, it was, there were some interesting spots in that. The other one was when I took a Tome, and then I basically didn't get any trait that was on my board. It was, like, Bruiser and Slayer, and I had no Bruisers and zero Slayers. Okay. Right? So I thought, like, maybe... Wajin can learn something from this spot, and then like we kind of figured out that it's like it's based on the item components that you have, like what you should commit to. Um, but yeah, uh, I do want to add a thing about China. I actually still think, going back to the previous point, I actually still think that China, as a whole, is the strongest region. Uh, I think that for a various amount of reasons, even aside from what happened at Worlds. But I just feel like, on the average, their player base just seems to have a better read better more efficient read of the meta than almost any other region that i watch and um i i, I thought the mobile players were still all really solid and they, they do make mistakes like every other player but i still think that china is number one and i still think that NA is number two so okay i mean i i we're a very biased podcast so it's hard to argue against that uh i guess the only thing i want to know is about sea i think and i, and I don't and i don't want this to uh, sound like you know where it's like super flame, but like SEA really did not do well this tournament, and they were kind of hyped up as like a big region that was like you know that they got their second chance at Worlds. Last Worlds they actually came really close and won in the final lobby to potentially uh, steal it from re replay, and now like they like bombed uh, this tournament. Uh, was that a meta read thing, Weijin, or was there anything else that you noticed? Uh, I mean, I think like. Uh, I think SEA might have been like a slightly weaker region, but I actually do think Piva, like one of the players at Worlds, I actually think he's like an extremely strong player. Uh, he plays on like NA a lot, and like he does, he has like, he's like really good on the NA ladder. And also he was like doing really well in scrims and like had like really impressive like stats and performance in like uh, SEA tournaments. So I actually expected him to do really well, and he didn't end up doing so well. And like, I'm not really sure what the cause of that is. Like, I haven't watched like every player's games, but um, yeah, I mean, I do think SEA has some like pretty strong players, but. Yeah, definitely like a bit of a disappointing worlds for them. It was rank one global. We hyped him up a lot, and like we we had high expectations for Hiva. So it was, it, it was strange to see him not perform. I I also was curious about this. I I have not yet like reviewed those games uh, to see uh, if there are any issues. I mean, Toronto, did you see anything uh like in the games you were in from the SEA players that could lead to anything? Do you see anything in scrims? 
uh, that could explain it, or do you think, I don't know, just variants? Yeah, it's probably just variants, but I don't know. I mean, I also, the, the thing I also took away from that is like when I say I didn't make top eight, I think if I was a better player, I would have made top eight. And after playing like a lot of tournaments recently, I feel like there's actually less variants than people think there is. Like, I don't know, it's, it's like a really complicated topic. I think there's a lot of variants. And at the same time, like, I think the best players on average, like, if, if you were to take like the top 15 players, I feel like top 10, like, did place in the top 15. So I guess it's like, I didn't really think people was like a crush or anything. Like I said, he's a solid player, like Wajin Everson was, was saying. But if he didn't make top 15, I don't think it would be a huge surprise. I would have thought that. I think most players have kind of established that like making top cut half is actually like mostly, if not all skill. And then like winning is like where the variance is like where it kicks in, like getting first place. Like you can't ever like really do that. But making final lobby like that's something you, if you're especially if you're surviving top half, half cut off, like that's a lot of like agency. and skill. Would you agree with that, Wayshin? Uh, like, yeah, I kind of agree with that, but I mean. It's also kind of bad for me because I'm a player who either w wins the tournament or like yeah, that's actually true. But, uh. <laughs> uh. Well, uh, well, interestingly enough, some of the stats actually say slightly differently, but we can talk about that in a second. The last thing I want to point out is uh, I know we're giving SCA some grief, but man, it could be worse. It could be Korea. Korea did terribly this tournament uh to the point where uh it was actually like shocking because at least i think we expected bobe to to do better but they also like some like some of the players that were in the tournament just look completely lost and outmatched i and I, i'm actually kind of blown away about like how bad korea is and baby tried to explain to me saying that like the way the tournament system is structured and incentivized actually actively turns away top players from taking the game very seriously um they just don't have people that like that consistently able to elevate their gameplay at a world's level. Um, and it's just like kind of a forefront region, which is a kind of a shame because I think Korea is just, you know, obviously like really great at almost every game they compete in. Uh, and the fact that they're like this bad, they were the worst performing region by far at worlds. Uh, it's very, very shocking. They didn't have a single player make the top half. Uh, we'll see though. Uh, I, I would love to eat my words because uh, you don't have to look very far to see Korea do well in other games. <laughs> Okay, best moment of the tournament to wrap up uh, World's discussion here. Let's start off with Toronto. What was the best moment for you? Oh, man, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I, I feel like just the entire experience, I really think it's an honor to play Worlds. I think that's kind of every TFT player's dream. Like, I mean, I, I'm kind of bummed out that I, I didn't make it to the final lobby, but really the entire experience was so fun. And I think, like, in the last two games, I kind of just thought, like, you know, as Weijin said, you might make it to Worlds again, you might not. But it's kind of like one of those things when you're in the moment, you actually have to appreciate the fact that not many people get the opportunity to be here to represent kind of like your region and playing. And just that alone, I feel like you should really enjoy it because you might never do it again in your lifetime. So it's just like, I don't know, I, I really enjoyed playing the Worlds just as a whole. Oh, so respectful. And it's also <laughs> like a, a mark of a seasoned competitor. So it's great to hear that. Weijin, what was your highlight of all of Worlds? Uh, I mean, I think like a highlight play I made, there's like, um, one game where I like, I, I won with like nine Ionia and I beat like nine Demacia. And there was like one like item anvil where like, I think a lot of people would take like RFC Belveth and I had like an Ionia Belveth, but I took like Warmogs for like more survivability. And I'm pretty sure like that Warmogs like allowed me to like beat nine Demacia and like got me like three placements. 
but I feel like that was like a pretty and it was also at, at a point where like placements like really mattered for me so yeah I feel like that was like a pretty like clutch play unfortunately the person who I beat was like Connor who's like another NA rep and like earlier in the game I took like Chrome stat for like 9 to month, yeah, so I yeah, actually felt did, like so did. bad about that the whole time that was that that is actually the robbery because if he didn't <laughs> take that stat Kuro would have made final lobby. Yeah, Kuro would have made final lobby. He had to do it. He had to do it, but yeah, I had to do it. But it's yeah, it's very tragic. I was literally praying, like, like I knew he had the open stat. I was just praying there's like no stat on Carousel because I knew I would have to take it, and then there was. Yeah, it was actually. I mean, it was just bad matchmaking. It was three NAs in the same lobby, so you guys were just griefing each other, which honestly is a story for a couple of reasons. Like Brazil had three people in in the lobby twice, I think, over the course of it. So it was like. It's just brutal when you have uh, so much of that inter-region um, uh, conflict there. Uh, Cass, what was your highlight of the, uh, all the World Championship? I mean, just to start out, I would say I like I love Toronto and Weijin having the uh, the mentality of like, hey, this could be the only one. Like that's how I see like casting worlds as well, right? Like, hey, maybe this is the only time I get to do that. So having that experience there, back when I, I had to play like relegation matches when I was a pro, you have that same you know mindset of like, hey, this might be the last time I play a pro match. So I think it's a good mindset to have as a competitor, but. I think like my favorite overall world's memory from one of the games was just sitting and watching the multiple uh, three-star four costs come through because we first see like Bobe hit it really early on stage four and then everyone chasing them throughout the game and ending up with like Bobe getting a third after hitting that uh, three-star four cost super early and just the reactions of all the crew uh, back in the uh, the green room like screaming at the TV while it's happening. It It was like a really fun game to watch with just everybody there. Yeah, that was wild. Bobe hit Shen 3 really fast, yep. but then everyone else started hitting. So then it, it resulted in Nasus 3 versus Sejuani 3 versus Shen 3. Uh, it was a pretty sick game. Uh, that was really cool. I mean, for me, it's... Um, I don't know when the next time I'm going to go to Spain because I already told them the next time for following year, I'm probably not going to because I'm probably going to do focus on co-stream. So it's just the fact that I got to be there. Uh, and I'm honored that they chose me as the NA rep for three times in a row. Um, but moving forward, as you guys may have known, I'm investing a lot in the co-stream and I plan on co-streaming worlds. I think it's going to be a really good experience because as it turns out, no one signed up. Every other region had multiple people sign up to do it and North America had zero. In fact, what happened was Emily Wang and Solis asked the morning of worlds if they could, sh- if they could co-stream and Ryan was like, sure. And then they showed up halfway through the day. They showed up late. So that was our NA co-stream experience. No one did it. So I guess I have to. So yeah, that's uh, that's neither here nor there though. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not getting mad at the other any, but why they don't want to wake up at 4 a.m., 3 a.m. to actually do it. So I, I totally get it. <laughs> uh, so I, but I, I'm gonna be doing that moving forward. Um, and I'm really honored uh, to the GG Tech team and the World's team to to invite me. Um, and I, I, I leave it in your hands, Cass. Please hold down the hey, fort. I hope, I hope I can uh, go <laughs> rep NA well and keep going back because I had a blast and I'd love to do it. Hey, my career started co-streaming, Dan. If I wasn't there, I would have done it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fort. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, and on that note, uh, that is it for the world's recap. Before we go into the rankings, let's go ahead and do a set of agrees. And it's going to be set nine focused, so, and world's focused. Um, it's gonna, and if it's something that we already did, I'll, I might move past it. Uh, we basically asked a question to the entire panel, asked if they agree. The first one is probably something that uh, has been a hot topic throughout all of the set, but uh, the, the agree is, in hindsight, Set 9.5 will be remembered as the worst competitive set in TFT history. Something that's been spouted a lot. I mean, you have even heard my speech previously about how we made it through uh, to, the, to the promised land. Let's start off with Toronto. 
Agreed? Uh, I don't think it was that bad. I disagree. I think there was a lot of room for skill expression. I guess I have a really different mentality compared to the other the community basically where I don't even really think about like if this set is like really bad or, or not. I just kind of think of how I need to get better at it. You know, it's like if somebody told me in order to make worlds, I need to play Cho'Gath like 50 games in a row. I'd be like, well, I wouldn't be asking like, man, it's, it sucks. Like I need to play Cho'Gath. I'd be like, what augment do I need to take? Like what's the second best augment I need to take? What's the third best augment I need to take? So I feel like if you really locked in on this set, especially like even the world's patch, which a lot of people said was really bad, I think there was a lot of ways to distinguish yourself. Um, there's like a lot of skill expression within the lines. Like I think people are upset that you couldn't play like true flex play, which I think is is not a good thing. But I still think that within the realms of what we had, there was a lot of ways to show that you were a, a better player than other people. And I think that people that were better prepared did better than people that weren't better prepared. Okay. So that's my opinion. I like that answer a lot. I mean, and it shows the competitive mindset. All right, Weijin. Agreed? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I agree with Toronto Tokyo, which means I, I disagree with the prompt. Like, I actually think, like, set, like, 9.5, like, tournaments actually have, like, a lot of skill expression. And I feel like the real trick was, like, playing the game in a way that didn't have skill expression, like, TF into multicasters. Like, I feel like that was, like, the real trick, because I feel like TF into multicasters and, like, regionals, and you're just, like, if that was your line, like, you were screwed, in my opinion. So, um, I mean, yeah, I feel like Earth, like... I mean, obviously, like, you're taking Ancient Archives every game, but there's, like, so many lines and, like, so, so many optimizations. So, I mean, I feel like there was a lot of skill expression. I, I didn't really think it was that bad. To me, like, I thought, like, I, I remember there was, like, one patch, like, I played a tournament and, like, set 7, and it was, like, so bad. So, I, like, I already feel like some of the, like, like 7 or, like, 7.5 might, might be worse for me. I just I want to add one more point. I, I think what Wajin Iverson said about the Earth was really correct, because I feel like you especially in regionals like there's just so many people that said there's nothing i could have done like it was just luck and i you it, there's always so much luck involved i just feel like i went back into some of those vods and i feel like there were lines that were taken that were minus like two minus three like and i'll give you a, a good example in na like ionia was primarily played as a level seven comp but if you watched china ionia was played as a level six comp and i think that's the way you were supposed to play ionia and if you looked at any regionals, there's so many people that would just sack and then go to seven and then play like Zaya, Sejuani, or like whatever Zaya board. And it was just like, it was so far away from what I think was fundamentally correct. And those same people would be like, yeah, I mean, it's just depending. Like, I didn't get Demacia Crest, so I automatically lose, you know? So it's like, yeah, there's a lot of luck. There's a lot of skill. I think people were too quick to complain. This is all completely. Aside from the enjoyment perspective, I'm not going to talk about that, but yeah. Okay. That's, that's totally fair. Uh, Cass. Uh, th this is really funny because I agree with both of them, but I also agree with the prompt. Like, I agree with them that there was a lot of skill expression still in 9.5, but I agree with the prompt because I think, hey, one set has to be the worst, and you have to take my opinion with a grain of salt because I kind of missed a couple of sets in the middle, so there might have been something worse. I don't know. Um, but for me... Uh, yeah, having the set gimmick be everyone starts with Tome, or the set gimmick be everyone starts with Orn Anvil, or a set gimmick starts with, you know, where everyone's kind of taking these same augments, I felt like it led to a lot of situations where uh, it didn't feel that great competitively, it felt like a lottery, and we had some balance issues with multicasters, right? Those Velkos boards winning 
super super late game comps when it's just a two-star bell cause i think that kind of stuff is not that good um i think there were balance issues this set you know more dog would agree with that there were balance issues uh and overall the gimmick of the set didn't work out so well that's just my thought i still agree with them though on the skill expression thing i think if you come into the tournament and you have a good plan and you understand the skill expression of this set you play with the parameters and you get better in it you can still compete and succeed but i still think you know a set has to be the worst and this one yeah to me kind of felt like it was the worst one yeah this one's really interesting because uh it doesn't count 9.0 uh because 9.0 was way better than 9.5 just yeah, based off balance issues uh i and i've i've seen it all so it's hard for me to actually think of a worse one. My instinct is to disagree with this, but I actually can't think of one that I enjoyed less, especially for the tournaments that mattered the most. I think most people were willing to forgive kind of like the atrocities of the past of like dragons and, you know, the other things like shadow arms. If it ends on, if the set ends well, right? If it, if it ends on a balanced state, I think the end of 5.5 was really solid. I think even 8.5, which a lot of people really didn't like hero augments end up actually in a pretty decent spot. Um, and, and it's just like, it's, it's hard for me to actually think of a worse, like, regionals patch slash worlds patch tandem. Um, there was a worse regionals patch. I think the striker meta in set six was probably worse. But outside of that, it's like kind of hard to, to think about that, uh, that, that tandem. So it's like, it, it's, it's, it's difficult because, uh, it's close. It's close. So if, if, if I, if I agree with this, it's a very, it's a very small agree. I actually, I'm, actually, I'm probably, I'm pretty much down the middle. And it's interesting that chat also is sort of split. They're here at 60 40. Um, so it's not a clear cut either way. I do think that, uh, it's important to recognize that we learned a lot from it. And I think Riot even talks about in their dev learning articles. If you guys don't know what we're talking about, uh, more dog, every set puts out like an end of set. We, this is all the stuff we've learned and here's the mistakes we've made. They've owned up to it. And I think you can already see a lot of that turning, not just in set 10 design, but also even in the PB balance philosophy. So looking forward to see what they got. Uh, and also, I completely agree that these people who say this are also tend to be the players who don't put up results. So, yeah, like, uh, yeah. shut up. <laughs> anyway, right, next wanna, fun. I just want to add, like, one more thing. Like, um, I was kind of talking from, like, a competitor standpoint, but I can definitely imagine that from, like, a viewer's perspective. Like, 9.5 was, like, very bad to watch. Like, oh, yeah. I, I if you scout the lobby, it's, like, <laughs> four multis for, for Demacia. It's, like... Yeah, like that's not very entertaining or interesting. And so. that's totally valid too. If your opinion is the entertainment enjoyment, like, hey, look, it's a competitive product. I want to enjoy. My enjoyment of this is severely being hampered by it. Then I, I can totally understand that. And also it's the most recent one. So maybe it's fresh in your mind. We'll see. And as time goes on, maybe people will forgive things in the past. People were telling me at one point that they missed dragons. They missed shadow items. Maybe they'll miss a little bit of earth legend popping tomes and stuff. It already happened. People want to go heart steal on the new set. They want the ancient archives already. It's already happening. I'm just saying. All right. Next agree. NA should adopt EMEA's format of six games, and then you cut in half, and then, or, or, or rather, NA should adopt EMEA's format. NA's format currently is six games, cut half, six games, and then cut to the top eight, while EMEA plays twelve games over two days, and then cuts to the top eight. Very similar to the world's formats. I kind of want to hear thoughts because this has been a discussion. Some players in NA have been very vocal that NA's format is very bad and weak, uh, and they'd rather do other different kind of formats. And some people are saying that EME is a good format. Weijin, what do you think? Well, uh, I mean, I've, I've, I have a quite a strong opinion on this one, and I think that cups should stay the same, and like regionals and mid set should like swap over, because like I think cups like, um, they're like not as important, so it's not like like fairness and like um, 
just like lowering variance is like not like the number one priority necessarily for cups but i feel like for like the really important tournaments like regionals and mitsa that should be like the number one priority and like i, I think like for cups like people might not want to like stick around for like 12 games over two days like if they're doing poorly but like i feel like for a tournament like mitsa or regionals like you still have a lot of chances to like win money or like go on some like miracle run to like make it back into the tournament so yeah that's my opinion okay okay i think that's totally fair um and you've actually have experience doing both, like extensively, because you've been to the World Championship. I feel like a lot of people who have who, who criticize the format actually haven't played it. Uh, and so I think it's interesting to hear that perspective. Toronto, what do you think? Well, it's actually really complicated. I think Milk makes a really good point. Um, the so the downside of so the good thing about twelve games is obviously the higher sample size. I think better players should always want more sample size. But it's also true that like I, I would say like there's a solid like 20% of the field of any tournament is basically like non-competitive with like the top players. And like you really want the, f like, like even starting from day two, you kind of want to start eliminating the players who just have like are completely lost on that patch or whatever. So I think, I, I will say agree because I just think sample size, you just always want more sample size as a better player um, or as like a competitive player, but I can see the argument for both. Okay. Cass, any, any skin in the game here for you? Yeah, well, I mean, this is interesting, right? Because from the player perspective, you know, if I was uh, still playing professionally and this was my game, uh, I'd want 12 games over two days, for sure. 100%. I would, that's what I would want. Uh, but when I think about it from the broadcast perspective, um, I think that having six games and then cutting, especially in these uh, cups with, like, so many players, um, being able to cut down the field to help focus the storylines on those at the top and kind of uh, really try and help tell the audience the story of these players and build narrative and do that. Uh, it kind of helps to have that cut. But then the question kind of becomes like, how much do people value that uh, main broadcast right now in TFT? A lot of people like watching players. They like watching co-streams. Uh, is the main broadcast something that everyone is so excited about that it should be important in the tournament format? Or should it be something that helps support what is the best tournament format for the players? That's the, the biggest kind of question. Is it a product uh, for viewership or is it a product that is entirely focused on the best possible competitive experience? And uh, once you get that answer, then you can kind of have exactly what it should be. Um, for now, I guess I would say disagree on adopting because I am casting North America. I don't necessarily like the idea of trying to tell the stories with the 12 games of all of these players in it. But um, I, I wouldn't, you know, hate the, the change because I, I see it from the competitor side of it as well. Okay. I think North America changed the format. I don't think it's EMEA's format necessarily. But something should change. Sure. I think uh, North I America stagnated a lot. Bilk was actually on stream earlier today criticizing Wisdom for, like, you know, not actually innovating the format. And I agree with that concept. I think that... Part of it is that the only the only issue is that I don't really think I can I I personally know what that ideal format is. I just know that this one feels like it's just not it. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like you're looking at a TFT board and you're like my board's my board this board's not it, but you just don't exactly know what can you do to improve it. I think that's kind of where we're at with North America in particular, where it's like we just don't know how to cap it higher. But I think the North American format needs something to change. So I need to figure out what exactly that is. I'm not entirely sure. I could agree with that, for sure. If that was the prompt, like, yeah, agree. <laughs> Ch chat says 70% agreed. Oh, wow. A lot of people actually really like the ME format. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, in the end, we'll, we'll see. I think ultimately, you have to remember one thing is that the competitive format 
is to help also onboard people to the competitive experience. And also, it's just also just as valuable as making sure the top players can get a really good uh, like weekend of games. in. Okay, the next agree is a tweet from Milk, actually. We just mentioned him. So <laughs> this was actually submitted by Kana, one of our moderators of the chat. She said, I want to hear what people have to think about Milk's tweet. Milk said, quote, TFT is a game where the more you suck, the more fun it is. So if you have a history of being bad at games, TFT might be for you. I right, start off with Toronto here. Yeah, I mean, this isn't really. I, I agree. Uh, this is not a TFT thing, unfortunately. This is a everything in life thing where when you're when you're kind of like bad at something or you're just playing it for fun, it's like it, it feels like you can do whatever and it works. You know, it's just like, oh, let me. You're playing TFT and you're like, let me just put these random units on my board. Oh man, I won this game. You know. Whereas when you want to get really, really good at something, you want to be at the elite level of something. It's like you got to study, and then afterwards, you got to look at the tactics.tools. Like, nobody wants to open up their tactics.tools explorer and spend like two hours, like, looking at, oh man, what's the fifth best item in like the Slayer comp? Like, hell no. You want to queue up your TFT and then just like put random shit on your board, right? Mm -hmm. But that's just the reality of being competitive at things. Like, if, if you don't do these things, other people will, and they'll have an edge on you, right? So it's, it's all about optimizing things. And it's not about having fun anymore. You know, it's about winning. And I think that's why generally when you get to the higher level of things, it's not like a bunch of four fun players. It's like people that are really competitive and care more about winning than is about just having fun. So okay. that's, that's my thought about it. All right, Cass, what do you think? I mean, for me, like anytime I've played a competitive game in my life, I have gone like pretty all in on it. Uh, so I think like, if I ever suck at a competitive game, I, I kind of hate it. So I, I, I probably disagree. Like, I think it's uh, being really good is fun. Like, there's nothing like the feeling of putting so much effort into a game and then playing against a bunch of people who test that ability with you and coming out on top, right? Like, that feeling to me is, like, the best ever. But I guess that's, like, why I went and became a pro gamer and, like, chased that down. Because uh, right, right. you're pro in, in Hots and uh, Legends of Runeterra, right? Uh, here's the Storm, and then I played Legends of Runeterra. I played uh, Hearthstone at a really top level as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is uh, it, it to me being good at the game makes it more and more fun because competing against other people at that same skill level makes it uh, that much better. Um, I don't know. I, I definitely like playing other games casually, but when it comes to competitive games, I think being good makes it better. <laughs> All right, Weijin, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with Casanova. So, I mean, I disagree with the take. I, I mean, I just think, like, winning is fun. And, like, I don't know, like, when I started playing in, like, tournaments and, like, started doing well in tournaments, that, that just made TFT, like, ten times more fun for me. And, like, like nothing changed about the game, but I just feel like, just, like, I don't know, just competing at, like, with, like, high stakes and, like, winning is, like, really, really fun. So. Chat disagrees as well. 66 to 33% split, so 2 to 1 ratio. I understand where Milk is coming from, though, by the way. He's at, believe it or not, he's actually trying to convince people to play TFT. Yeah, for sure. uh, he's not trying to, like, flame anything or, like... He's actually saying, like, hey, look, it does, you can still have fun while being bad. It, I, I think that's kind of what he's trying to say. Uh, I do think it's funny how he phrased it because, <laughs> uh, you know, I know a lot of people that don't like sucking at TFT. Uh, my wife, Taylor... She does. She hates feeling stupid at the game, and she and it's actually doubly so because she 
you know, she's with, she's lives with me and she's like, well, you're so good and I feel so dumb and I don't like feeling dumb. That's why a lot of people don't like playing a lot of hard games in general because they just don't like feeling dumb. Um, so I think it's case by case. Me personally, I think it's a personal thing. I personally don't mind sucking. I think I care about the progression. I feel like if I'm improving at the game, I'm having fun. Um, and I think a TFT is a game you can infinitely improve at, which is why I think I always have fun. Uh, interesting co uh, conversation though. Um, and that brings us to our last agree before we do our rankings as a last part of the show. This one, I like to start off with Casanova. TFT is a strategy mm -hmm. game. Play-by-play -play hype like traditional esports shouldn't be part of commentary. This Ooh. is in direct criticism to the way the world was casted, especially towards the end yeah. uh, of the last yeah. day. So I want to start yeah. off with uh, another world's commentator. Casanova, and someone who's partially at fault for the initial uh, people casting like this in TFT. Uh, back to set one fight night. I uh, was play by playing fights because I thought it was hilarious and fun. Um, and it kind of brought some joy to the the experience. Uh, I think that play by play should be a part of it, but it should be used potentially differently than we use it now uh, and potentially more sparingly than we use it now. Um, I think play by play hype is important when it comes to high stakes scenarios uh, to help build emotion. But the important part is building the emotion, not just being hype. Uh, so that can come in a lot of different forms. And I think that that is the way that a lot of casters should start to look at it more and take a, a hard look at ourselves and uh, think about what is the best way for us to convey this emotion to the audience uh, in these high stakes moments and then uh, capture it. And sometimes that's hype. Sometimes it's a fight getting turned around last second by an Aatrox popping out and we got to scream about it or soju making it to uh worlds and you and bryce have to just yell our hearts out for a moment um sometimes that does come into play but uh overall i would say uh, disagree uh but it's a nuanced take so okay uh Weijin, what do you think wow i feel like this is actually like a really hard and loaded question like on one hand like like sometimes i watch like like chess like casts and stuff and I actually like really enjoy it. Like I think like the um, like usually they'll have like like gra like grandmasters like commentating the match and like they have like super like high level analysis and like insight. But like at the same time, I feel like if like someone's like winning worlds and it's just like no one's like getting excited about it, like isn't that like really really boring? So I mean, I guess like I guess it should definitely like have a place. I think, but yeah, maybe be used like more sparingly and like maybe the default should be like like insightful analysis. Also, I don't even know if like the average like TFT viewer like even wants like insightful analysis or if that's just me. Like, I, I think it's actually a really hard question to answer. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, and Trump, you you've been around. I mean, you watched all kinds of uh, esports all the time. So, what do you think? I don't know. This is yeah, like we just said, it's a really difficult question. Um, it's so interesting to me because I feel like TFT is kind of like poker where most people kind of just like to watch more of the individual POVs than they do like watching the like the full stream product. And like to some degree, even like I remember like your co-stream at regionals did really well. Like so it's actually we haven't really seen like the full limit test of like a really well produced co-stream where it's just kind of like more focused on analysis and just like kind of following individual player POVs, kind of analyzing their decisions. Like I could see a world where that kind of becomes the predominant form of like viewing TFT, just because it's just so much easier to follow like a single person than it is to follow like eight different boards. And like the, the hype, like the super hype stuff feels like kind of out of place. So 
I'm not really sure. I think there should be some play-by-play, but I don't know if the current way that we view TFT esports is like correct. I guess my point. So I'll just say agree. Interesting, interesting. Chad slightly disagrees. By the way, it caught. It's 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 55 to 45. Very close. Uh, and I think that. I actually, it's so funny. It's, it's funny. I, I, if you guys are expecting me to give a definitive answer, there's a reason why I'm co-streaming because I personally believe we don't have the answer yet. I think TFT is actually doing a lot of things differently across the board. Uh, and I think storytelling in uh, the game itself is also part of that. Like the game itself is an interesting genre because we don't, free for all battle royale type games are really hard for esports in general right look at fortnite and apex and everything they struggle with like how to actually go through in terms of broadcasting it um and i'm trying to figure that out myself with the co-stream i thought i think at one point my commentary in tft was a little bit too much about play-by-play hype and i started that's when i said like okay i want to actually make it a lot more about what it actually makes the game interesting and enthusiastic and I look back on like when I cast at set five and set six and set seven and set eight, and I see a natural progression of like the things that are actually interesting aren't exciting and vice versa. Sometimes the things that are exciting are actually aren't that interesting. And I feel like I'm trying to understand that myself. So uh, the, the, the thing about co-streaming that's really fascinating is I get to explore that up close and personal in real time. And I, so I think that even a year from now, the co-streaming will even get better for TFT. I hope that... Uh, you know, I hope that the main broadcast doesn't stop doing what they're trying to do, which is bring a traditional product for people who have traditional expectations. But I also think TFT can do something very different than almost every com- competitive game experience. I-, I think it could be somewhere between chess and League of Legends World Ch- Championship <laughs> Series. Uh, I think, so- I think, and I think there's times where you can uh, do it. Um, and I think that also reflects what I believe in good commentators should do. I think traditional roles, like you're the play hype guy and I'm like the color guy, I think that doesn't exist in TFT. Personally. I, oh, I, I I think I you have to be able to do everything. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that's just my personal bias on it. Oh, I think traditional roles and commentary for TFT should be thrown the hell out the window. I I full full agree with you there. Yeah. Plus commentary yep, yep. all the way. Yep. All right. Well, that's all our agrees. Good discussion, guys. And I love to be here talking about the state of TFT, especially esports. But we are here to ultimately do one thing, which is to crown our top fifteen players of set nine based on performance remember there's one thing to keep in mind is that if we're talking about raw ability and skill and like whatever their peak you know is of like whatever their ceiling that's not what we're discussing that's a lot of the power rankings this is a final rankings of the set but first we're going to start off with the people who got votes we threw out ballots across and asked who to submit we had people who got votes but didn't actually place so we're going to start off with the snub list people who just narrowly missed on the top 15 and we start off with Vanilla at 19, DQA at 18, DPay at 17, and Philip at 16. And I want to say one thing is that these numbers look a lot lower than every other set. If you looked at, if you compared to our snub list from previous, it's be like, that doesn't, these guys barely got any votes. You guys have a lot of ballots. Actually, that's how strong the consensus top 15 was, just putting it out there. It was a huge gap between 16 and 15, like we've never seen before. So... Uh, the one thing I will say is that uh, it's cool to see players like Philip and Vanilla get shoutouts because DPA and DQA, have, 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 you know, I think they've been DPA and DQA have made it to the list before. Um, and Phil, Phil's part of your group, right, Weijin, Toronto? Yeah. Okay. And, and yeah. you've seen like a marked improvement on his end as well, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I think he's improved like a lot this set. Okay. Okay. 
Um, and so we'll see whether or not these players can make it in the future. But, you know, 16 to 19 is still really good, especially for a, a list that was so concrete. Even making it and getting a mention, I think, is worth recognition. All right. So without further ado, let's go ahead and introduce number 15. And we'll start off with what I think could be quite eyebrow raising, but we'll explain a little bit. At number 15 comes Robin Songs, the lowest ranking Robin's ever received in any power ranking ever. And it turns out his performance all throughout set nine has actually been quite subpar to his standards. At 15, his slash line is 4.3, 49% top four rate. But here's the really interesting thing. Robin's win rate is outrageously high. Robin actually has completely converted from what should be a top four oriented player to be a player that played for first really often in the set. Fascinating development. He's been talking about how he like had some up and down performances, but still 15 feels kind of low. Does anyone want to, uh, does anyone feel like 15 is too low for Robin or does that, does that make sense? 15 was actually like exactly where I placed Robin. And I think I had like the exact 15 players that are the 15 players on this list on my own list. I think, like, there's definitely, like, some recency bias. Like, Robin had, like, an insane Free Lord Cup, and then, like, the rest of the set was, like, relatively quiet for him. So, like, obviously people are going to remember, like, the more recent tournaments, uh, like, more. But, yeah, I think people just, like, expect, like, a lot, a lot out of Robin. And then, like, when he only has, like, one kind of, like, standout performance in, like, Free Lord Cup, and it's, like, kind of, like, a long time away, I feel like it's kind of easy to, like, forget about what he's done, even though he still has, like, some pretty impressive, like, AVP and, like, win percentage. Yeah. I, yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard because the, the ranking is really heavily centered around regionals and I guess mid-set. And I think the regionals patch is just really bad for Robin. Like his style as a player, he's obviously like a really strong fundamental flex player. And um, he kind of got gated into a really bad meta read, which ended up being TF multicasters. Almost every single player that played multicaster TF did really poorly that tournament. So I don't really think it's on him. But at the same time, I don't know if his results justify anything above a uh, top 15 i think they'll do better in set 10 though like i'm 100 sure yeah, yeah yeah i agree with that and i think um i think just to give people an understanding of sliding scale is robin did have good results i mean he won things like box block boot camp and and failure cup but remember the sets get weighted more the longer rather the most important tournaments happen towards the end and the least important tournaments happen towards the beginning because there's so much more impact and stakes and weight being put on things like mid-set and like things like regionals uh, and going into it. So I think most people were not very impressed with how Robin approached those tournaments, not being able to make really deep runs in that, in, in that field. Uh, but that being said, uh, look for him to come back. I think set nine was also a little bit off of Robin because I think he spent a lot of time going out and being IRL and taking tournaments less seriously uh, and also focusing a little bit more on stream. So may maybe a little bit of that spectator influence mode Maybe he's just a little bit offset. He already won a, a PB tournament to start off set 10. He's already coming in hot. Uh, expect Robin to come back swinging. All right. At number 14 comes in a newcomer to our top 15. Based off his world's performance in Sharima Cup, it's Connor is me. Some high highs and some pretty low lows. Uh, not making it far in Noxus Cup. Uh, Connor's a really interesting guy. I want to go to either Toronto or Asian. Who wants to talk about Connor? Because you guys practice with him going into uh, into Worlds. I mean, I, I actually think that like 14 is like kind of underranked for Connor for like what he achieved. Like, like um, I feel like um, like his Sharima Cup was like very, very impressive. Like he was playing like Ezreal like at a time when like 
I think everyone was playing like Orn or something, so he he was like going off the path and like doing extremely well with that. And then like his regionals, like I think some people like might try and discredit him because like his primary strategy was like multicasters, which was definitely broken. But like, and I actually think that he played like insanely well in regionals, and I actually think like his mastery over like the multicaster line like might be like the best of like anyone in that tournament. Like I think that he shouldn't really be discredited at all. Like I think it's like a super impressive performance. So yeah, I, I mean. I, I think he was saying, like, Noxus Cup, he got, like, kind of, like, IRL diffed, and he had, like, a lot going on. So, like, that, that's why he got, like, day one. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think he had, like, a super impressive regional. Not, in my opinion, he deserves to be, like, even higher on this list. Some yeah, people think... who rated Connor rated him pretty highly. Uh, Connor got, uh, from, like, like, Dish Soap actually rated him fairly highly at uh, top seven. Um, alongside Dark Noob. So these are two players who get a lot of respect, and they gave Connor a really big jump. In fact, without these votes, Connor probably would be on the cusp of whether or not he'd make the, the rankings, maybe like 15 de uh, decisively. But just to give you guys a good scope of like who actually believes in Connor's performances, it was pretty interesting. 13. Things are starting to heat up. Another player who we're not entirely sure how to peg from time to time is Casper Wu. Casper Wu makes the top 15 with a third in Shurima Cup and a very narrow miss on top eight at regionals. And as you know, if you can make Final Lobby, anything could happen. Casper coming in at 13. Uh, I'll go here with Casper and talk about it. I think Casper is a really underrated player and has actually been very strong in almost every metric that you care about. His tournament stats are good. His ladder stats are good. And in general, outside of like one performance in the failure cut where I think was quite poor for him in terms of like not making it to a certain cutoff, I think overall he had a really strong set. Uh, I actually rated Connor, or not Connor, uh, Casper, excuse me, higher than this as well. So um, I think it's fascinating. Where Casper gets hurt is that a lot of people who either rank them put him basically at the very bottom or they put him like firmly in the middle of the pack. And so it kind of depends on where you view Casper in terms of his journey. I think part of it is that he shit posts too much in chat and uh, pedals too much like meme tech. I think part of it is that like people don't know how to take him seriously, but maybe that's part of like the way he just presents himself so that like he gets in tournament mode or he doesn't psych himself out or whatever because he doesn't want like, you know, people to hype him up. But Casper is seriously good. And I think he's top 10 material for sure in NA. I don't know if anybody yeah. disagrees, but that's kind of my uh, spiel on Casper. I know it's not like actually I don't think included at all in these like power rankings. We also had a really good ladder set overall. Uh, I mean, he qualified based off of ladder for a lot of the events and he just generally was near the top for a lot of the set. And I mean, I, I see that Gangly rated him the highest and then Bryce also had him uh, a bit above this uh, at like eighth. Um, so I know like there's a lot of uh, commentators that are still like valuing highly and maybe it's his peers like the other players, as you said, maybe too much meme tech and they start to devalue his, <laughs> his position. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it could be. It could be. Uh, either way, really happy that he was able to make this list in general because I do think that he's underrated. And a lot of these people from 11 to 15 in general uh, are players that I think uh, in general get underrated. Go ahead and talk about number 12. And I'm going to go to Weijin for this. It's Toronto, Tokyo. Toronto, Tokyo comes in at number 12 off of a fantastic set 9.5. And uh, well, 9.0, let's not talk too much about that. But Finishing out the second half of the season incredibly strong. Second, and then top eight, and then tenth. Uh, what do you think? Of, or sorry, actually, this is a... Not, yeah, this I is think wrong Cup is, is LCQ. I think Nox's Cup is supposed to be LCQ. It's, it's yeah. supposed to be LCQ. Sorry about that. Yeah. I did these graphics. Uh, Dench. Okay, where you go? I mean, I, I, anyways, I mean, I actually think, like, Toronto-Tokyo is, like, 
a very 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 strong fundamental like player and like i don't think he's gonna be like going away anytime soon like i think the way that he like thinks about the game is like very similar to me actually because like when we like bot review together i feel like we like agree on like so many decisions and like so many spots uh so yeah i mean i think like he'll be like a super strong player like now and going forwards i think lcq like i think self-admittedly like he felt like he almost didn't deserve to like make it through and like it was a bit of high roll but then i feel like like um going into regionals like i feel like he practiced so much and like improved so much and i actually do think that he was like like one of the top players at regionals and like i think he's like very deserving of the world spot and then worlds like yeah i think there were some like bad beats on the second day but i think like he was definitely like a player who had like the potential to like qualify for the final lobby and like once you're in the final lobby like anything can happen so yeah i mm -hmm. think super highly of him and uh yeah, I think he definitely deserves to be here. I might have even put him like higher than this as well. You put him exactly here. So, <laughs> but I mean, that means that you feel like it's accurately represented. I want to uh, toss it to Toronto, but I want to add one thing before I do. You didn't even rank yourself, man. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't feel like it's good form to rank yourself. I, I don't know. It, it feels really hard to objectively rank yourself. I think what I will say is the other cups before LCQ like, the bad performances, I don't think was luck. I think it just wasn't that good of a player. I think I really made the largest advancement as a player going into LCQ. And um, that's kind of like, I, I, every, every tournament after LCQ, I thought I was going to do well. Going into regionals, I said I would bet on myself personally to place above a 4.3. Like, I wouldn't say that it's an average higher than a 4.3. Because I just felt, like, really confident in my own ability what was going on in practice and then at worlds as well i thought for sure i would like more more than 50 percent of the time i would average above a 4.3 is how i felt about it because that just that's just how the practice kind of showed me that like the players aren't unbeatable kind of deal so yeah yeah okay look Weijin glazed this guy up but i'll glaze him up a little bit more because i think the improvement we saw from toronto was like more than we've seen out of any player like that i can remember uh coming from those early cups and then jumping to the next uh you know jumping uh, of course lcq and then onwards and i think that every time we've had an interview with him and the way that he talks about the game and the fact that you're like 10 plus year esports vet you you understand what it is to be a competitor and to like improve and try and go after a game i think the the biggest winners in tft right now are the people who are prepping with toronto tokyo and actually like talking uh about the game with you because i think that rubbing off on other strong North American players is just going to level up the region a lot. So, I mean, that's kind of how I see it. I think when we look at the set holistically, like Toronto coming in at 12th kind of makes sense, right? Because you have to look at the set holistically. And at the start, this guy was trash. This guy was terrible. And then <laughs> wow. turned it around, right? <laughs> completely improved and became one of the best players in North America. And I think like that still, you're, you should make it into the top parts, but then like you can't be too high up if you were that bad at the start of the set right like it, it, there's a balance there <laughs> nice <laughs> i like that no i like that i like that and i think um i like your humility unfortunately uh you know Weijin did rank himself just gonna spoil it here uh i i do but i do like your humility um and i think that especially i think within the range that you were within i think that is entirely fair uh and for people who uh are curious uh, toronto decided to rank philip and gipe instead of himself for example um, so I thought that was really cool. At number 11, I'll take this one. It's P-O-K. He moved up. <laughs> he was at 14 last set. He's at 11 this set. And so Pressman, ever on the improvement grind. P-O-K is back. He had an amazing set 9.0. 
And then 9.5, he not only did he not sign up for the Noxus Cup, he bombed out of regionals very hard uh, in a disappointing day one exit. Uh, to the point where I think Precivent actually, you know, had his first like very real like, do I even want to do TFT uh, type of existential crisis thing? Because I think he took the entire like set to play one tournament because he didn't play Noxus Cup. And then he got day one. So it felt like a very like unsatisfying experience for him. Thankfully, that's not going to be the case. He's going to be back for set 10. And if you look at set 9.0, my God, this guy was on fire. He got top four in a couple of events. And he was also very much threatening other like ex, uh, other tournaments, such as the Boxbox Bootcamp, for example. So uh, precedent, he also was like at rank one to try to prove uh, um, all the doubters wrong, right? Shout out to uh, Nantom, who like really put Precedent on blast for like being a, a, you know, like a guy who had so much ego and couldn't really back it up. And Precedent just like held rank one for a long time and like kind of pushed for it. So overall, I'm really proud of him. His stats are fantastic. And uh, the one thing, okay, it looks like his win rate was way too high. It's actually lower than that. Must have been, a, I think it's 12.5%. Uh, but overall, a fantastic set for Precedent. Uh, just wish that he finished a little bit stronger and, and regionals weighed very heavily. Okay, let's go into number 10, which is another player. I think I want to go to Weijin for this one. It's uh, Darth Noob cracking the top 10 from a person who didn't make top 15 at all to this set, getting power ranked multiple times and pushing to the top 10. I feel like you're the player that knows him the best out of all four of us. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I think like... I actually think that Darth Noob is like pro probably like the smartest player that like I know. Like the way he thinks about the game is like so so good. And I feel like he's also like um the thing is usually like players that are like very smart, I feel like they often like have like an ego and they're not willing to play in like a degen style, but like funnily enough, like Darth is like very, very willing to play like a degen style. I mean I, I would say his performance at like Cups was like very quiet, but I think like making the final lobby of like the two biggest events was like super super impressive. This one, I can confidently say I actually did put him higher than 10th because, uh, like, I do think he's, like, a super good player, and I think, like, he's going to get underrated just because, like, on this list because he didn't win anything, but, like, I mean, I think there's only, like, two, two or maybe three players that, like, made the final lobby of, like, mid-set and regionals, and those are definitely the two most important events, so. Agreed, agreed. Toronto, uh, have you talked to Darth a lot at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we, talk, we talk a bit. We're not, like really deep in conversation, but I, I think he's definitely the smartest pure like raw intelligence player in TFT. And uh, yeah, there's not much to say. I mean, his results speak, speak for themselves. I think these rankings always come down to mid-set finale and NA regionals as being the most important, and he did really well in both. So he deserves it. Darth's story is really fascinating as a guy that was like a rank one hyper roll grinder like a couple sets ago, right? Like hyper roll, like kind of like that meme uh, playlist that other people who have grinded have done pretty well in. Uh, but like he was the first person to do that. Like without Darth, you wouldn't have people who say like, you know, hyper roll can actually be pretty good. So really interesting to see Darth come from, from there to where he is now, where he's kind of a trusted source of information. He's a subreddit uh, moderator for the competitive TFT. And also kind of just like helps a bunch of people out in terms of questions. Like anytime people have like things about TFT inquiries, it's always Darth that's uh, coming through. And so yep. love to see him perform. The only thing is that he has hit or miss performances, right? What stops him from perhaps moving up for more is, you know, you can't really like have too many weaker performances where you get like in the 40s or 50s or 60s. Um, not that he's there in that 50, 60 range, but uh, if you can tidy up some of that, 
we'll see where he can go. The other thing, look at his stat line. He has a 5% win rate. I was like, is that right? And I looked up some of his lobbies. Like, this dude does not win lobbies. This guy is a top four machine whenever he's clicking with it, but uh, also goes eighth. He has like a really high eighth rate and a really top high top four rate in conjunction to that, uh, which is really fascinating. So yeah, this guy has a really interesting uh, play style and, and, and uh, uh, I look forward to see what he's got in the future. He might have been even higher too, uh, but Gangly, somebody who I know values consistency quite a bit, left him off of the ballot actually. Surprisingly, though, I think uh, top 15, I think easy for Darth, but uh, Gangly decided against it. And a lot of other players, uh, you know, had him at like sixth through ninth uh, instead of that 10th that spot where he ended up falling. All right. At number nine, we're going to the single digits here. We got Goobums. Goobums had a pretty quiet set overall. And he did have one really notable performance, but he also had consistent performances in the sense that it always felt like he was threatening within a pretty good range, like, you know, the 11th and 15th and getting a second at mid-set. But I got, or Noxica rather, but I will admit, uh, I did not rank Goobums very highly. Uh, and so who actually did rank Goobums very highly here? That's here, actually. Uh, the highest person to rank him was... Toronto, Toronto, Tokyo. So why don't you talk about Goobums yeah. here? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody always considers Goobums really strong. Like, we have a mental bias for thinking Goobums is strong because he's always within, like, the top 5, 10, top 10 of ladder. He's always doing really well, consistent performances in tournaments. So it just doesn't feel right to leave him outside of the top 10, in my opinion. Like, if you look at his breadth of results in this set, like, he just consistently does well, and he's always high on ladder. So... I feel like he deserves a good spot because of that. Yeah. I will say that that is starting to change. This might be one of the last few times we might be doing something like this, especially as sets continue to heat up because the legacy factor and the eye test uh, only goes so far, I think, when you start measuring against like how competitive the field actually is. But I do think Goobumps absolutely is top 10. I mean, at his peak, I think uh, this set specifically, when he was like on informed, this guy was top three in NA. Like a lot of like, I think he was oh, right there with just open Satsuko yep. uh, at his very peak, and I think that's partially why people uh, remember that. And the knowers know, and I think that's that's all you really need to know about it. All right, at number eight, could it be anybody else? It's K three Soju. Soju comes in at number eight, being a very interesting results if you look at it. It feels almost like eight is too low for Soju yeah. because look at how consistent he's been throughout all of set nine, despite the fact that he's kind of up to his usual shenanigans. He's kind of forefunding it, running it down. He went to GM, he stayed triple digits, the whole thing. But when it came down to it, this guy knows how to put some pants on. Soju, uh, you know, go, going up against Soju in regionals, this guy was actually a threat to win it all going into the final lobby. Uh, Wage in Toronto, what do you make of Soju set 9? I feel like 8 is a little bit low, don't you think? Okay, I actually screwed up on my ranking. I actually think, so what I've always said about Soju is I think that if he were taking the competitive side of this game complete, completely seriously, he would pretty much permanently be top 5. It's just that he's like trolling over half or like 70% of the time and kind of like doesn't <laughs> care except for like 3 days before the tournament. But the thing is like Soju is one of the strongest fundamental players in NA. Like, he literally trolls on purpose on ladder, like, to entertain the fans. So, it's, it's kind of hard because his persona is known as somebody that's intentionally trolling. But when he, if you notice, like, whenever he needs to climb for a snapshot, 
he literally averages a two over the course of 30 games and climbs like Skinner LP. So it's like we know that he is good when he wants to try. He just doesn't try very often. You know what I mean? That's oh, oh, we know. <laughs> we know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I honestly don't think that much more needs to be said. I mean, the fact that he, I, I think if anything, it could also be used to benefit him, right? Like people, it, it, the fact that he is doing all this and still maintaining effectively top eight in the entire region, despite how competitive things have gotten, is m immensely impressive, right? Because he has a bunch of responsibility on his shoulders to like almost be the face of North America and be, you know known as his entertainer and deal with harassment quite frankly like soju deal, does he, he does get a lot of benefits but he also has to deal with a lot of harassment uh i, I think it's fantastic this has been a great set for soju i think he should be very it, proud of it it feels like like one of his better set like one of his best sets stat line uh wise when you just look at the placements in tournaments right like if we look at those placements for like any other player or like a lot of other sets that it, it feels criminal that this isn't in the top five but i know there's a lot of like other insane stat lines uh to come as well so all right coming in at number seven is one of the highest that we've had of a newcomer that wasn't just straight up like winning the world championship type thing is t lides t lides comes in at seventh after doing very well at mid-set and regionals we talked about the weight of that in contrast to to Darth Noob, he did get to World Championship with regionals, and he had a very respectable showing at the World Championship, although didn't actually... I think he fizzled out towards the end. Uh, but I kind of watched some of his games, and it felt like some of them were unplayable. Uh, did either of you VOD review, like, extensively with TLIs? I think, Toronto, you did, right? Yeah, we we VOD reviewed a little bit because other people were busy. Vision had uh, midterms, and other people weren't online at the time that we VOD reviewed, but he's, he's a really... I felt like it was only a matter of time before he had his breakthrough set because generally people that are always really high ELO on ladder, like unless they have a choking problem, I feel like they they kind of just end up doing well in tournaments eventually, you know? And I feel like this was TLI's kind of breakout set where everything just clicked for him at the right time. He's really smart about the game, really fundamentally strong, and, you know, the luck went his way. So he just had good results to set, I feel like. Yeah, Weijin, what's your read on T-Lights having competed with him? Because you guys actually have been competing around the same length, by the way, like sometime end of set 7 and then into set 8 and 9. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think he's, like, an amazing player, and I think he's, like, not going anywhere. Like, I think we'll be, like, consistently seeing him, like, on the power rankings and, like, set 10 and, like, more sets to come. Uh, he's actually one of the players that, like, I watch, like, a lot to, like, learn and stuff. Like, I, I, oh. I actually like watching his, his stream a lot to, like, learn. Because, uh, I, I mean, I think he's, like... I think he's like the way he plays the game is like very smart and like I think there's like a lot to be learned there. Um, I think he like self-admitted like when we were talking about it like I think nerves kind of like got to him and like almost held him back a little bit at Worlds and like I feel like his meta read was like like maybe just like a little bit off like I feel like he was leaning like a bit too much into like the Noxus line. Um, but I think like he had like an insanely consistent set and I think he's like an amazing player and definitely like super deserving of this ranking. Okay, and um, it's just interesting, right? Because we talked about Darth Noob, the the having the hot, uh the pin set and regionals performance, but uh, part of the reason why he's above people like Soju is because he had those highs, which are really important that people are looking for. Not to be outdone, his practice partner, as the narrative has said, the world champion before him, Re Replay, comes in at number six with some pretty impressive stats. Except for like one very, let's just ignore it for Let's just, there's a little bit of an eyesore <laughs> there, but 
outside of that, if actually, if you took out his failure cup stats, this guy's uh, stat line is extremely impressive. Cuts down to 4.1 above 60% and everything across the board. Why is everyone spamming fraud in chat? Can someone explain? Is this guy a fraud, Weishin? You played with him before in the previous World Championship. Is this guy a fraud? Okay. <laughs> okay, this is like kind of gonna sound like flame. I, I don't mean it in like a flame way. I feel like re-replay is like one of the players that proves that like LP doesn't mean everything. Because <laughs> LP is not that high, but he's like a beast in tournaments. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I feel like his consistency and like his play in tournaments is actually like super insane. Like, I think it's just maybe he just finds that like hard to take ladder seriously or something. But yeah, he's a beast. Yeah, I, I think he has, um, I think him and Casper Wu are two brothers from different mothers <laughs> in some ways. Like, it feels like they just, they love to make people think that they suck almost to like lure them into like a, uh, into and like to lower their defenses and, and catch them off guard. <laughs> ah, so that's why he won 107th at Freljord. So everyone would think he sucks, and then he just smurfs <laughs> the rest of the season. I mean, really, like you, as you said, you get rid of that, and this is like uh, akin to his uh, uh, his stat line in the previous set, right? He just outstanding across the entire board. Uh, Freljord, of course, you know, hey, sometimes you you get one, right? You get one in a set where you get to just bomb. <laughs> 100%, 100%. Uh, and I do think that a couple of things go differently at regionals for, or a couple of things go differently for mid-set. If you watch some of his games, he knows that he could have improved a lot. Uh, as much as Re-Replay loves to troll and whatnot, the one thing that I think is always impressive is his uh, improvement mindset. I think he is really strong um, relative to some of the average players that I see in tournaments. So really looking forward to seeing he can bounce back because I think six is a little bit low for him. I, it, we know what his ceiling is. And also a, a great way to follow up a good performance because we've had some people who also had incredibly strong performances and sets and the follow the set, they're not even on the rankings. The fact that he was here and a couple things go his way, he can move up is really, really impressive. Well yeah. done. All right, at number five, this is where it starts getting real big and real tough in terms of who you decide to rank. At number five is when we start getting uh, some, a lot of consensus, but also you rearrange a ton. It's PP. Dish sub comes at number five, which I think is actually his highest ranking thus far, which is a shocking statement to say. The fact that this guy is top two every single power rankings and at one point had the longest drink we've ever seen at rank one for power rankings in North America coming at number five. It sounds weird, but if you think about it, it kind of makes sense relative to some of the other players that we have yet to reveal. I want to go to Toronto here about Dish sub because... You've kind of been like an onlooker a lot for him, and then you're playing against him now. What was it like going up against Dissop a lot this up? Um, I, you know, this I, this is where I feel like the list gets really interesting because I think if we ask every single player in A, who is like the second best fundamental player, if not the best fundamental player in NA, it's Dissop. Like almost every person will say it's Sesco and Dissop, right? So I guess it's like kind of... Like we're kind of like waiting for Dishop to really have like his breakthrough, just like crush everything, win every tournament, send, and it kind of hasn't happened yet. So it almost feels like Dishop, as a player, deserves to be number two at least, but he's number five, which I feel like is really low for him. So I, I kind of like wonder, like, do you think like it's because like luck that he hasn't like had like a really like just dominant set yet, or do you think it's like something like about his? play style because i feel like i respect him so heavily as a like as a player for him to be like number five 
on, on the ranking. Like, I don't know. I think it's because he hasn't gotten the most important thing that the other players above him have, which is a world's appearance and to, sh and to prove it on the world stage. Um, and that's incredibly difficult. You have two chances yep. so far this past set. And to add on to what you said, like I said, I want to reiterate, this is the highest Dishup has ever been on a final rankings of a set, which is just wild to think about. Uh, so... It's actually really interesting. I think he's had a really strong set of tournament performances, but in general, he still has really good stats. I do think that variance is part of it. I think he just needs time. He just needs time. I hope he doesn't get impatient. I know the stream cup 48th was spawned the meme. If you need a, if you need a supplement on that, you can type exclamation point dish up in my chat. But uh, we'll see. I think that his consistency will just net him that world's performance yep. or world appearance over time. I think it's crazy to think about like dish soap where it, some people feel like oh dish underperformed expectations and then this is still the scoreline that we're looking at right like the fact that the expectations the weight of expectations on dish are so high that this is like disappointing when this looks like some of the you know like most insane stats that you would see in a strategy game from players it's just the beginning okay. this is kind of unrelated to his ranking but but i actually think dish soap stream has like single-handedly made like the na ladder like much stronger <laughs> like even myself like like when i was like a low challenger player like like and like improving a lot like i would watch his stream like every single day and i think there's so many like challenger players it's like oh like i suck on this patch like all right it's time to like, go watch like a six hour dish soap blood yeah so like i'm yeah, pretty sure he's, yeah, he's actually made the entire yeah. server like significantly stronger i yeah. do that when i'm not in, uh understanding a patch well enough like before a cast i will watch a long dish soap vod to just like help uh fully understand some more like nuance in the patch <laughs> everybody uses it I, everybody's copying his homework Oh, and it happens other regions as well. Um, and, I, and I'm really glad for his stream success as well. It felt like Satsuko hit that spike earlier. And I think Dishup's really coming on strong um, while keeping up the quality of his play. I hope he uh, keeps it up. Good job, man. All right, here we go into the top four. And once you start seeing these top fours, it all kind of makes sense. It's Milk. Mr. Milk Guy comes in with a pretty hot stat line. 4.2, 60%, and a 20, almost a 21% win rate. And this guy, if you look at it, made four final lobbies, which is incredibly difficult and immensely consistent. You talk about consistency, yeah, you know, you're able to get like a third in a tournament at regionals and, and fifth at, you know, not uh, at the mid-set, whatever. But this guy was in contention to win four tournaments out of the five. And by the way, he topped it off with winning the DSG trial. So he actually did end his tournament or end his season with a win, which you could argue is... Uh, really important as well because he got signed by DSG. So, Milk coming at number four. It almost feels like, man, if this guy is number four, who are the top three? Or rather, what does the top three have to do to really outperform this guy? Incredible consistency, cast. Yeah, I mean, this this is absolutely insane, right? Like, uh, normally, I would see this kind of consistency. And since it's a strategy game, I value consistency over a lot of things. And I would put this guy in number one. So, as you said, the fact that this is number four is pretty ridiculous. I think the big thing about Milk is he kind of did what Soju did this set, but just a little bit better, right? He was even more consistent. He played, you know, obviously a vastly different play style than Soju. He played a lot of first wraith, but even with the first wraith play style, he still netted this 60% top four. And I think that's like one of the craziest stats with especially how Milk plays the game that he was able to still keep that up. I just need to add something. You know how Wajin just said like, Dishso makes like the server better. I'm pretty sure 
you get worse if you watch Milk Stream because he always <laughs> does. Like, Wait, what? I, 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 like the thing is, you will, he he always like he'll like one trick Kaisa to like rank one, and then you look at his stream. It's like all right, I got all I gotta do is I gotta build Shoujin JG, and then I'm gonna win the game. And then you do it in your own game. You just go eight. Like you go eight. It's like, and then they'll go like multicasters like forty games in a row, and they'll go top four every single game. And like TOT is so easy. Like I'm just gonna play multicasters as well. And then you do it, and you just go eighth. So it's like, <laughs> it's actually insane. Like, I feel like that's the craziest thing about him as a player. It's like, he knows how to play every line so well, but at the same time, like, he can just pivot to playing, like, standard at, like, at any point. He, like, he plays, like, the gimmick lines because he knows that they're super OP, but at any point, he can just be like, all right, I'm going to play standard, and then I'm, you know, I'm going to do it just as well. Which is a thing that I don't think any other TFT player can do, unironically. So, I think yeah. that is really well said. I feel like Milk is one of the hardest players to emulate and is partially what makes him such a unique player. It's also what it's it's also why Soju is almost like a, a super fanboy. I actually rarely see Soju like legitimately fanboy for people. And I think he's a legit fanboy for Milk because I don't think like I think because Soju's like almost in awe of the way Milk plays TFT because he knows he can't do that himself in some ways. Um because every time he talks about Milk, dude, his eyes light up. He's like, Milk is the best fundamental player. He's just insane. He's the best player, like, you know, ever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's just great. It's great to see their friendship. It's great to see Milk have good result. I want to see him back one more time. He said, Milk said that he needs to win Worlds once before he quits TFT. And he's getting pretty close every single set. Let's see what he does in set 10. And now we reach the podium. The top three of our final rankings. The first one is a player who had a really high high a couple of uh, tournaments as well as some really strong performances overall and his best performance to date in any final rankings a guy has been here since the very beginning it's Kuramex. Kuramex had two wins in the Freeler Cup and the mid-set finale and that's what got him to the World Championship and if it wasn't for Wajin Iverson <laughs> griefing his spatula in a three NA lobby at the World Championship who knows? Kerm could have made Final Lobby, and we don't know what happens after that. Anything can happen in Checkmate. But Kerm at three is uh, outstanding, and I also want to toss it to Weijin. Weijin, you ranked Kerm at number one. Uh, yeah, I did actually put Kerm number one. Uh, I just felt like, like the person who was number one, like to me, that criteria was like someone who has like won like some tournaments like one or more tournaments in the set, someone who's made worlds, and like also someone who has displayed like consistency throughout the whole set. And to me, I felt like Kerm was like the only player that like kicked all of those categories. Like he won Freylord and Midset. I feel like he was like very, very consistent throughout like every tournament, except like maybe like Shurima Cup, but I think he like wasn't like as like invested in that just because he already won Freylord, he already qualified to Midset. And then like, um, yeah, in like 9.5, like he was like, I feel like he's trying very hard, like trying to prep for worlds. And I feel like he did very well, and I think, like, Earth Meadow was probably, like, not a good thing for him. And he still managed to do, like, like above average at Worlds. And, like, I feel like if it was, like, a different meta, he could have done, like, even better at Worlds. So, yeah, I just felt like he ticked off all of the boxes of, like, someone who would be, like, the number one player of the set to me. And I feel like there's no one else who did that. I think it's uh, very respectful you say. And I, want to, uh, I also want to chime in here as a longtime onlooker of the TFT competitive scene. It's just great. There's nothing like watching Kurum succeed in TFT because he truly wears his emotions on his sleeve. Uh, you can just, you, you almost just hear every single time he talks about a tournament how much passion and how much 
dedication, how much he wants it. And so watching, being able to see that come to fruition, bear fruit and hit for him to have success. There's very few people I enjoy watching have results in tournaments because like, and, and this is not to like call out anyone in particular, but there's so much like people that come on and they're just like, oh yeah, I'm really happy. And uh, I high rolled and you know, like it could have been anyone, but it was me today and I'm really thankful. But like Kurum, like he like, I mean, dude, he pops off. He's screaming. He's probably not wearing clothes. And then he puts on clothes and turns on his cam. He cries on stream. It's just like, it's re you can see how much it means to him from the very beginning. And the, and watching him go through his journey in TFT is truly special. I want to see him continue to succeed. And it's just a, such a good time. I call him the people's champ of TFT in North America. And I think it's a very accurate description because when he wins, everybody wins. Okay. And on that note, despite Kurum's fantastic set, he is not in the top two. And so with this, we're going to talk about top two. The way it's going to go is we're going to, uh, I'm going to go to Toronto, Tokyo, because I'm pretty sure you know what's going to happen here, but I'm going to add something else at the very end of it. So without further ado, in second as silver is Weijin Iverson. Weijin got first at regionals in one of the most dominant performances we've seen in regionals yet. And then came very close, if you don't factor title, to winning the world championship as well. And also had insane stats. I want to show you guys the previous slide one more time. At number three, Kerm had 4.2 average placement, a top four rate of 57 and 11%. Very strong and respectable. Now let's go back to Weijin. And you guys can see 3.5 average placement. 70% top four rate, 22% win rate. And I'm cutting off some of those decimals. Wait, and you're like, this is bad for me. I'm not really a top four player. You, <laughs> you top four 70% of your games this tournament. And these are tournament games. You can't be that bad at top four. All right, now I'm done talking. Toronto, take it away. Talk to me about Weijin. Yeah, I think Weijin is probably the biggest showcase that this set 9.5 actually has a way higher skill cap than people think. Because if you just think logically about the the sample size of games that Weijin Everson did well in towards regionals, um, regionals, worlds, it's just like it, it was a sample size of like 40 games or something like that, where he was averaging a three. And to average a 2.5 at regionals is probably like, I, it might be the most dominant performance that we've ever had from a player ever in the history of regionals. So I just feel like, how can it be luck? You know, it's like it reached a point where it can't be luck is how I feel. You know what I mean? It's like, yep. that, so it, he, I mean, he deserves it, right? He was, I think he was the best rep. I think everybody knew that he was going to do well at Worlds just because he had reached like an edge on the field where it was like, it couldn't have gone wrong is how I felt like. But I didn't want to say it to him because that just sounds like a massive jinx. Yeah, but like, but now, now that it's like post everything, it's just like, yeah, this can't be luck. That's just how I feel like. Okay, Cass, very briefly talk to me about Weijin as well from a caster's perspective. You followed his journey. Yeah, I mean, I, I just the stats were the biggest thing. That it was the talk of the town at Worlds going in. It's why Weijin was a heavy favorite among the casters. I had EU convinced uh, the EMAA talent convinced that Weijin was like the, potentially the best player at the tournament. Right? They were like, "Yeah, Weijin's probably going to win this thing." And uh, I mean, it, it shows you kind of kept that consistent throughout the event. And uh, it, it really is that point where the stats speak for themselves. 
All right, Weijin, you are second, and we did spend some time glazing you. W. Glazian Iverson. <laughs> what, are, what are your thoughts on being number two? Yeah, th yeah thank you, guys. Um, <laughs> being number two, I, honestly, like, I'm kind of glad that I'm number two. So, something that's kind of funny is, like, if I ranked myself number one, I could have been number one. But I feel like, like, this is, like, a wrapped episode that's, like, supposed to, like, encompass, like, all of, like, 9 and 9.5. And I just feel like I didn't have, like, the consistency to be number one, so I'm actually kind of glad that I'm not number one, but I'm very honored to be here at number two. That's, uh, that's actually, again, very, man, you, you two are great guests. You guys <laughs> handle such uh, nuanced topics with grace, and you guys are also uh, speaking very humbly. It's, it's very nice. It makes it easy to cheer for you guys. Uh, Weijin is completely right. If a single person, I just want to put this out there, if a single ballot swapped Weijin with whoever finished number one, which I'm pretty sure most people can guess at this point, then it would have been a tie for one. That's how close it was. A single person decided to put, hey, Weijin won, this other person too. It would have been a double-way tie for first place, which would have been a first time in our rankings history. But without further ado, no more stalling. At number one, the most respectful, the most humble, the most calm, patient, and understanding TFT player in North America Setsuko claims number one in the rankings. His first final finish at number one. And we talked about the banana stats. He has it all. Incredible finishes throughout the tournaments. First in two of them with Shurima and Noxus Cup. Even better average placement than Weijin by 0.1. 3.4, 71% top four rate. And a 28.6 win rate, an absolutely earth-shattering win rate across the entire field in what is one of the strongest regions in all of TFT. Unbelievable set from Setsuko. And what's wild is, he didn't even make the world championship. And by, him, by his own measurements, I mean, he had a great set, but he didn't make it to Worlds. Incredible performance from Setsuko. And I... I it's really hard. I, it was very close between 1-2 and 2-1, but if you look at it from this lens, it's really hard, Cass, to argue against Setsuko number one. Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't have a ballot. You know, maybe maybe I'll get a ballot eventually, but I would have put Setsuko number one as well. The big thing, going into regionals, this 3-4 was a 3-1, uh, which is stupid. He was absolutely gapping everybody. And then in regionals, I mean, I hate to say this while we're crowning him number one, but I genuinely think he choked a bit towards the end of that tournament. I think there were a couple games that just were uncharacteristic of him. If you were in the stream watching his POV, which I was during that time because uh, I was not casting at that moment, um, he felt flustered and he didn't quite get there at the end. And I'm scared to think of a Setsuko who can get past all of that, who can finally just break every single bit of that uh anxiety and pressure that gets to him because he is an absolute tft machine an absolute monster the stats are insane and uh i mean this is a guy that you uh, coming in i was saying this guy is the best in the world and then he didn't make it to worlds and i think that's uh you know just when it comes to a strategy game that can happen i, I want to see him get back to worlds i want to see what he does in set 10. All right, let's get some comments from the other people. Let's start off with Weijin, the guy that, uh, that Setsuko narrowly beat by just one ballot vote. Setsuko number one, does that, feel, that feels right to you, yeah? Oh, I mean, I, I, like, I had Kurum number one just because of like, the world's factor, but oh, it right. definitely doesn't like, seem wrong that Setsuko is number one. Like, the thing is, like, these Shurima Cup and Noxus Cup first places, like, I feel like the other thing they don't show 
is just like how dominant like that first place was like those tournaments like second place is like not even close i'm pretty sure mm -hmm. and like like i feel like even in all of worlds like i can't say that there's like any player on the world stage where it's like oh like i don't want this person in my lobby but like setsuko is like one of those people where it's like like i actually like don't want him in my lobby interesting Toronto, some comments on Setsuko's first number one finish. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's rough because his mid-set and his regionals was bad. But the thing is, like, it's hard to argue in my eyes that he's not the best player in the world and his name has that weight. Like, I almost feel like if you swapped Setsuko's name with Karamix, then Karamix would be number one. But it's kind of like, what he does, like... Those tournaments, like the way he dominated them, I think one of them he averaged like a 1.9 or something like that. Something crazy where it's like one, 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 five, one. Like, there's no other player in any that can do that. You know, like it doesn't really matter how hard you put eyeball almost. So it's just like, he's just, yeah, I think he's my vote for the best player in the world, period. Oh man, I can't figure out a better way to, to wrap that up then. Setsuko, congratulations. Last set, he finished number two, somewhat controversially because he had arguably a better set uh, by be making it to the final lobby, but re-replay, claiming the world championship, being number one, having a great set, uh, wasn't the end up finishing number one. Setsuko somehow even raised the stats on this set and was able to claim that number one. Congratulations. And congratulations to the entire top 15. I think uh, set nine was a fun journey. I'm really happy to see all the people who are new as well as the old people able to fight for those new rankings we have a couple more things to do before we clean up the show we're almost at the very end i promise you guys thanks for hanging in there it's been a long show first is uh people ask what happened to fantasy you guys did regionals a long time ago uh you guys never had we never had an episode since uh here we go the regional fantasies draft was won by soju and soju when asked for a comment said wow i actually won something this set he went first place uh second place went to <laughs> Uh, second place went to myself, Precedent went third, and Bryce went dead last again. Shout out to the draft of, or the top pick for Connor by Precedent, able to get 90 points for $1. That was pretty impressive. Which brings us to our fantasy for the entire season. I'm so sad Bryce could not be here tonight because he had to spend time with his wife with a, a date he accidentally double booked. Um, or rather, he gets to spend time with his wife. He's, had, he's recently had twins, so if he has a night off, he should take it. But if there's one thing that you look at, look at who finished last in every single fantasy draft. It was either Bryce or his replacement, who was co-hosting Raditz, who came here for the mid-set finale. Bryce, man, I hope you're having a good time on vacation with your wife. But if this is what it's going to be like, I'm going to need a new co-host to fantasy draft again. So I'm probably going to ask Weijin then at one point because this, this is, is not a competition, reason. man. What is even going this is on? The real reason he didn't show up today. This is the real yeah, reason. Man. Right? This is why. This is why they called me to uh, replace him. <laughs> he couldn't even face the music. All good. All good. All right. Uh, and that's it in terms of closing. Let's go ahead and do some final announcements. This has been a great set overall. The first is Box Box Bootcamp's coming up for set ten. This is really exciting. Uh, it's another ladder-based tournament. This time it's kind of like officially, officially endorsed by Riot. I mean, before it was, but now there's all these fancy graphics. A lot of money on the line. There's tens of thousands of dollars. A lot of competition. It's going to be a really good time. Make sure you guys support your favorite streamers. And uh, I signed up, hopefully, uh, a lot. Like, Weijin, I think, Weijin, you said you signed up, right? 
Yeah, for sure. Cool, cool. Uh, Toronto, I'm not sure if you did you sign up. I don't. I feel like this is not really something that you do in general. I signed up, but I don't even think I qualify for the. Okay. Requirements, so, uh, <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Okay, chat. We're coming up on it. We're coming up on it. Chat saying DSG. That is something that is potentially coming soon. Uh, congratulations to DSG for making it to one year. But the big thing is, they said that they didn't sign just a few people to DSG or just milk. They said they signed 10 players to DSG, the TFT Vegas Open. Wajin, any comments? Oh, maybe one day that'll be me. <laughs> all right, all right. We'll see. Uh, keep an eye out for that, and congratulations to Toast again for uh, making money. I think he said he broke even or he didn't lose that much money for the first time uh, all year long going into November. All right, and on that note, that is it. Let's go ahead and get some final comments and tie up this bad boy and say goodbye to set nine. Let's start off with Toronto, Tokyo. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, Ferdinand. It was really fun. It's a pleasure to be on here. Um, you know, a lot of people think set nine wasn't very good. I, I liked it. Personally, I thought it was pretty fun. And uh, But I do think set 10 will be better. All right, Weijin. Yeah, um, I mean, same thing. Like, th thank you so much for having me on, and thanks so much for doing like co streams for the cups. Like, I'm pretty sure like half the players when they're dead, they just like tune into your co stream and watch. I know, at least <laughs> I do. So, yeah, I mean, but I, I think it makes like like DTIYDK and like the co streams. I, I think it just makes it um, so much more interesting for viewers. Like, you actually get to learn about the players um, and just like have like a really good understanding of what's going on. So, yeah, I think it's awesome what you do for the TFT scene. Awesome. Thank you. It's, it's, it's a pleasure. The pleasure is mine. And I really couldn't do it with really all of you all. And also, I hope next time, if you want to jump in between games and complain about if you're RNG, you guys aren't the kind of people to do that. But uh, one thing I want to do with the co-stream is talk to more of the players in the middle of the tournament. I think it's actually really fun to do kind of that kind of stuff. But if you want to focus, I totally get it. Uh, Casanova, any last words before we do our special announcement? We have a special no. announcement at the very end of the show. Thanks for thanks for finally having me on with this. Set nine was uh, actually my favorite set. I know that sounds kind of crazy with how much I've complained and the fact that I said nine point five was the worst competitive set earlier, but I absolutely loved it and I'm really looking forward to set ten. All right, sounds good. And now we come up to the very big special announcement that uh, we've been building up towards. Uh, this is something that I've been working on for a long time and something that I hope that uh, people will appreciate because it's only the logical next step. Don't Talk If You Don't Know is officially expanding to the EMEA region. That's right. We usually focus on North America and North America only. But starting from set 10 onwards, we are actually going to have a secondary show that's going to be dedicated to covering all of Europe, Middle East, and Africa region. EU has been waiting for some time to get their opportunity and find out who's the top players and tell a lot of their storylines. Um, and this is going to be a show that's not hosted by me, but I'll be supporting that show. And it'll be fun because maybe I'll make a guest appearance and whatnot. Uh, but more information is going to be provided at Las Vegas because here's part two. Oh, it's a double whammy. We're going to do a live Don't Talk If You Don't Know at Las Vegas. We have uh, set up with riots. It'll be me, Bryce, as well as who is hosting the EMEA show is going to be happening live at Las Vegas at the Vegas Open, and it'll be the way we open up the entire weekend. So before the very first game of TFT is played, you'll be seeing Don't Talk If You Don't Know happening leading in to the weekend of the event. So that is the double announcements. I said there's only one, but there's actually two. 
that'd be really cool and the cast i hope you uh feel free to stop by we're gonna do like a bunch of guests it'll be like a two-hour pre-show leading up into the event wage in toronto if you're are you, guys, you are you guys going to the land actually i didn't ask i'll be there i'll i'll be there and I uh, i'm not going unfortunately speculate that Weijin might be there I, i'm not going unfortunately. no Weijin, you're not gonna be there <laughs> we'll oh, see we'll see that's so sad <laughs> okay well Weijin is not gonna be there but anybody uh here on this podcast as well as uh if you're a player a special player or streamer feel free to stop by welcome back from everyone from the ad break if you just missed it we announced don't talk if you don't know it's coming to emea in winter 2024 it's a new show and the second part of this is that we're going to announce who's hosting that show when we do a live episode of Don't Talk If You Don't Know to preview the Vegas Open this December. So it'll be really fun. I've never done a live produced episode of this show, so hopefully it doesn't uh, blow up in my face. Okay, so that's it. So uh, thanks for watching this episode. Set 9 is done, and we'll see you guys in Set 10. If you missed any part of this episode, check out our content at youtube.com slash at DTIYDK. Or follow all of our content for Twitter at twitter.com slash DTIYDK show. For Frodan, Casanova, Wajin Iverson, and Toronto, Tokyo, thanks for watching, and we'll see you guys next time for more TFT action.